podcast is brought to you by Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery. Need you cool. Are you cool? Bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Ready to fly, bitch. I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. Mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'ma get medieval on your ass. You're shut to this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the life. Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to your monthly worship service where we help rejuvenate your soul through the good works of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino. I'm the Reverend Scott Kay, and this is the Church of Tarantino podcast. We've reached October, and that means we're in Tarantino's 2010s era films in our chronological journey through his filmography. And what better way to kick off this decade than with his second foray into revisionist history and his first official foray into spaghetti westerns with his most financially successful film to date, I'm talking about Django Unchained. But before we go on an epic bloodsoaked quest to free Broomhilda, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast for his first go around, the host of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club podcast, Mr. Devon Taylor. Welcome, Mr. Taylor, and may Tarantino be with you always. Hello, hello. Tarantino is always with me uh, in one way or another. Um, you know, he. It's interesting how you know his films do kind of seep their way into your life and you kind of don't really realize it like when you don't realize that you're quoting something like and, <laughs> and that's like you know a, a testament to to uh his contributions to the zeitgeist like when people don't know that they are uh you know quoting your stuff so yeah tarantino is always with you uh, you know obviously i started a podcast based on the man and i think he is the greatest of all time i'm sure some people will debate that but it's really not up for debate in my opinion and i think this is very important when i talk about for this episode and also uh, why it was important for me to have my first female guest on when we did Death Proof. You were also my first African-American to come on the podcast. Not because I haven't reached out to other people, but you were the first to graciously come on. And actually, the person who recommended you to me is the podfather, as I've mm -hmm. mentioned him on our show before, mm -hmm. Mr. Petros Petsilovis. He was originally going to do this spot. He said to me that, you know, you would be perfect for this. I said, let's do it. 
I reached out to you hoping you said yes. And again, I don't want this to turn into some kind of like after school special where the the white teacher's trying to save all the <laughs> he's the guy who can only help out all the people who are not white. But I really think if we're gonna talk about this film, the landmark that it is, also the controversy, like the real controversy that jumped up. I mean, he had his first controversy with Spike Lee from Jackie Brown, but this one, as we're gonna talk about in a little bit, sets a benchmark for a certain word to be used. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot of stuff that goes with it, plus the the depiction of what, what this movie's about as well. It's revisionist slave movie history. So we're going to get into that. But first, before we jump into all the, the real meat and potatoes of this film, how would you tell our listeners what the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club podcast is all about and how you started it? Yeah, so the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club is a podcast where we dissect uh, genre films, uh, I mean, primarily horror, uh, but like I, I'm one of those guys that like I kind of look at genre films as a whole, like, you know, like sci-fi, horror, like it's all kind of in an umbrella, but it's horror based. And uh, we dive into the various subgenres and franchises because I like to, uh, you know, find the patterns within these things. You know, what makes a, a, a successful monster movie work, you know, particularly in that vein? Or how does the continuity of this franchise add or, you know, take away from said franchise? Or like, what are the recurring motifs that come up in, you know, right now the Predator franchise, you know? You got sweat, you got traps, you got one-liners. So it's like I like looking for the the uh, the, the patterns and recurring elements, and you know what make uh, those subgenres or franchise films successful. And uh, I host that with my buddy Garrett McDowell. Uh, we have a we have a pretty good time doing it, and uh, I get really stoned. I'm a I'm a big stoner. I'm stoned <laughs> as we speak. I'm gonna get Fantastic. more stoned as we continue to speak. But I'm actually glad because you know for for tackling a movie like this, mm-hmm. um, and I I. I I haven't been an academic writer in a long time, but whenever I come on to certain pods that I feel, um, you know, that I want to put my academic hat on a little bit more for, I get a little nervous. And now I, I'm, I'm actually like real pumped and feel uh, you know, very prepared for, uh, to, to undertake this one today. And before we go, I do want to uh, shout out Petros because uh, I, I do think it like was uh, re- really awesome of him to you know kind of take that you know side and say hey like you know as much as i love this film you know i think uh coming from a certain perspective might uh be a little bit better which definitely ties into um, uh, uh, a particular character in the film that we're gonna discuss a lot yes uh uh, within the film and like kind of what he stands for within the film but then also Mm -hmm. tarantino in making you know this uh type of revisionist history for it to be this you know slave revenge exploitation film so uh yeah so so shout to petros he, he yes. he's the best he truly is i call him the pod father he is he's one he of the kindest the people he is just a great person he wants everyone to succeed now as this is october obviously more, normally it's how you know horror films well i mean i guess in some states you could <laughs> this would be a horror film in certain certain households in this country yeah. who who may or may who may have sided with one side other than the other this could be a horror movie for them um so but what is your favorite horror film to watch during the halloween season you know uh, i mean this this aside from death proof might be the closest to tarantino doing a horror film and that's you know maybe why it is my favorite tarantino film and why I, it actually feels very apt to talk about in october because you know regardless of you know whether uh whichever side it could have been on you know it's uh, very true it's horrible for both sides yeah 
yeah, slavery films in general are just uh, kind of horrific. Um, but uh, to to kick off Spooky Month for me, um, you know, I constantly watch horror films by, you know, obviously. In October, it's about, like, what feels, you know, fall like, what feels Halloween-esque. And uh, for me, if I'm trying to crank up the October vibes, I'm starting with Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. Ooh, good choice. That's a one that's left off a lot. And I don't think many people would even put that in. Kudos to you, sir. I've noticed people in uh, in the horror circles uh, the past uh, couple of years have been uh, bringing that one back up and, and discussing it a little bit more because it's it's all vibes it's all october vibes like the opening title sequence of the film is like i mean you have blood splattered on a pumpkin you got leaves rustling you got uh so much fog in the film i mean it's just uh i mean there's a few like pretty scary sequences but really it's just it's just creepy and spooky Mm -hmm. like it's a spooky ass movie and um and it puts me in October in the October mood like instantly. And is there anyone better suited to play the Hessian than my man Christopher fucking Walken? I mean, and what and what like genius to be like, I'm gonna cast somebody that has one of the most distinctive voices yes. in Hollywood, uh, to not say a word. I, I love that. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. Not only does he have a great, you know, obviously distinctive voice, but he does have a distinctive look and he's able to bring that sinister look at his with those eyes to life as the hessian or for those who don't know as the headless horseman he's phenomenal he really does uh yeah so that that, that's my go-to like kicking off spooky season film all right well let's jump into this spooky film that is django unchained and we'll start with your guest question since you're the first one on you get your guest question this one has become rhetorical because if you answer this wrongly, then I've done a terrible job of vetting and Podfather will now get shot down for this. <laughs> but are you, in fact, a huge Tarantino fan? I am a big Tarantino fan. I guess maybe this question is how big of a Tarantino fan are you? That's fair. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I pretty uh, the only one I still I, I've, I've been telling you I've been meaning to watch Jackie Brown for like the past like two weeks. And I still haven't watched it. That's the only Tarantino film I haven't seen. So I'm not a completist. Uh, hopefully that is not uh, too big of a sin here. But but uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I like his style. I very much love, you know, very kinetic films. I love uh, incorporating musicality. And, you know, like he really is marrying ideas of, you know, film and like, you know, what inspires him and remixing them in these ways. And, you know, people knock him for that sometimes. And it's like, I, I, I never uh, fault a director for showing their influences in a film as long as you're doing it creatively. And, that, and I think Tarantino is the best at that. He is literally the best at taking his influences and these homages and doing them in such clever and creative ways that serve his film to where it is, you know, to where it is him making a statement. It's not him just taking all these other ideas and putting them together. It's the way that he orchestrates those together is, um, is like one of his strengths. So I've always, um, I've always gravitated towards it. I love his, you know, stable of, uh, actors that he uses. A lot of them are some of my favorite, you know, actors, Samuel Jackson, Brad Pitt, Kurt Russell, um, So, you know, anyone that, you know, ends up in that stable and he's like one of those directors that's fun to be like, ooh, what actor would be fun in a Tarantino movie, you know? And yeah. uh, yeah. So, yeah. So uh, long story short, I'm a I'm a pretty big Tarantino. (laughs) Now, what was your gateway drug into the Tarantino universe? So. 
it, it took me a minute to remember because I was like, which Tarantino movie did I watch first? Um, but it was Kill Bill Volume 1. Um, All right, yeah, we just my, did it a couple months back, yeah. Was my entry point in, uh, which I find fascinating because when you kind of look at that film, yeah, it is very much a Tarantino film, but also kind of doesn't feel like one in a way. Um, it feels, uh, I don't know, somewhat different than the others, but it was a great introduction just because of, you know, the action and, uh, you know, seeing Uma Thurman just being a total badass. And, yes, absolutely. And then once, uh, it, it was definitely like one, like, you know, I watched it whenever I was like, you know, younger. And then like, as I kind of started watching it more and then like, and also, you know, getting these uh, cinematic references that he's making and catching up on some of these films, uh, just like, you know, it's one of those films that you like have a more appreciation for, like as you like kind of get into it a little bit more. And then it's like, I, I feel like that might be maybe his most mainstream film. I mean, we talked about this one being the most financially successful, but I don't know. Uh, Kill Bill Volume 1 feels like maybe the most accessible out of any of his films, even though it is still very bloody and violent, but in a way that still feels like not as uh, intimidating as the violence can be in some of his other films. Yeah, you know, I think what it might be also is, you know, you look at his first four in the 90s, a lot of crime stuff going on. And then after Kill Bill and, and Death Proof, you get Inglorious onto Once Upon a Time, where Once Upon a Time kind of steps away. But the next three films, and you go Inglorious, we got Django, and then you go into The Hateful Eight. There's a, there's a lot being said there. He's got a lot of things he's talking about. It's a lot about racism, a lot about inequities. Uh, you know, we talk about him. He's got basically kind of talking about the Holocaust in, in Glorious mm-hmm. Bastards. Uh, you, you're dealing with slavery here. We're dealing with post-slavery and really talking about the environment that America was going into in 2015 when that movie came out, of Hateful Eight, and then kind of tones it back a bit in Once Upon a Time. But yeah, Kill Bill is one of those... I don't want to say it doesn't have uh, anything to say. It's a very women-empowering movie, but it definitely doesn't have this, you know, like he's not trying to make so much of a statement as much as he is showing, look what I can do. I can do action as well. So I know, Mm -hmm. I can see why you would say that it is his more accessible, because it is accessible, Mm -hmm. you know? It's not mindless fun, but it can be seen as mindless fun, just sitting around and just watching a good kung fu samurai movie. It's kind of breezy, like, in a way. And and I say that about volume one specifically. We'll talk about volume two in a sec, but... Volume one is a very just like kind of, yeah, like it's a breezy kind of put on fun action movie. Like, you know, like I throw it on at the bar a lot. Like it's a great bar movie because like, you know, as soon as, uh, you know, she gets to uh, Orenshi and the crazy, everybody's like, oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, and Because everybody like recognizes that because, you know, yes. that was you know, one of the the first films that like really put, you know, him in a, uh, you know, wider audience. Yeah. Eye. So that'll bring us to what is your favorite Tarantino movie, which I think you might have just alluded to. Um, Not alluded to for this question, uh, but uh, we are talking about Django Unchained today. And that is my favorite. I've wrestled back and forth between it and Inglorious Bastards before. Um, I would kind of go back and forth between which was my favorite. And as much as I love Inglorious Bastards, um, there are some sections that um, kind of slag a little bit. And it can, um, some of Tarantino's films can sometimes feel a little bit clip showy, if that makes sense. Like, yes. they uh, yeah, like, you know, that they are like these chain of, you know, long segments put together, uh, which aren't always my favorite. 
And uh, Inglorious Pastors doesn't get as heavy into that as, say, like maybe Pulp Fiction, but uh, it kind of gets there a little bit and just doesn't feel as smooth and cohesive as Django does. And so I give it, and just also for like the uh, the, the 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 personal stakes that I have with Django, kind of give it that uh, give it that edge over Bastards. Completely fair. Although Death Proof is the only film that doesn't have that is like the straight story goes from A to B. There's no flashbacks, mm-hmm. nothing. This film does the same, but there are the flashbacks. We go back to the Krukin farm. There's a couple of flashbacks in the movie that keep it from being the traditional A to B, but this pretty much is an A to B story, which I think is you know helps what you're saying. Like We follow Django from day one to the last day that we get to see him with everything that happens. So mm-hmm. I, I get that. It, it's a much smoother storytelling device for sure. Now, in your opinion, what is his most underappreciated film? So um, his most underappreciated film is what I was alluding to a minute ago is I think Kill Bill Volume 2. Okay. I like that. Uh, You know, it's the slower between the two of them, and it focuses more on the revenge aspect of it, the revenge thriller aspect of it, versus it being uh, more action-based. And uh, don't get me wrong, again, Kill Bill Volume 1 is like, maybe the more fun watch between the two of them but as far as Kill Bill Volume 2 is like where all the the, the thematic richness comes in mm-hmm. um, you know it takes its time it really lets it breathe you know getting to learn a little bit more about the bride as it goes on and of course we get to meet the titular Bill at the end yep and you know the the way that he has you know we're, we're building up Two movies worth, I mean, well, one movie, one yeah. very long movie, but, you know, four and a half hours worth of, you know, getting to Bill and then, like, you know, the climactic scene is them talking in his backyard. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my gosh, like that's yeah. insane. And just like, I mean, I love everything with her and Bud. Uh, you know, the sword fight in the trailer uh, is fantastic. I mean, so it still has great action beats mm-hmm. and thrilling sequences in it, but it just really uh, lets the, act, like this one, there's a lot more uh, great performances going on uh, than I would say in volume one. And, you know, I, I feel like uh, volume two just kind of gets the shaft a little bit because everybody just like wants to watch, you know, the action of volume one. You know, volume two for me is a lot more uh, emotionally impactful. Very fair. Very, very fair. And you're not the first person to kind of say that. Ooh. Now, who is your all-time favorite character in the Tarantino-verse? And it is a vast verse. Yeah, man. This one was this one was tough because um, there, there's definitely a few standouts that came to my mind. And, you know, I think we're going to talk about... My my true number one for a good portion of today's episode. Uh, so I'll say, you know, Dr. King Schultz. Um, oh, okay. And, I actually, I you know what you I actually thought you were going somewhere else. Okay, Dr. King Schultz. I like it. All right, Dr. Dr. King Schultz. Um, you know, I'll put out. I'll give uh, my my general my base thesis, and then we'll kind of get into him more uh, into the episode. But you know, Schultz is interesting because. He might be like on Tarantino's, you know, very gray morality scale, might be one of the most good characters in his universe when you kind of think about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, you know, really builds this genuine friendship with Django and, you know, goes, you know, and like, uh, you know, like kind of just taking advantage of the situation, using it to his means to get what he wants and what he needs. And if it's convenient to help Django, then okay, sure. But then, you know, halfway through the film, he makes a, you know, very conscious decision that 
he's, you know, not doing it for himself anymore. He is doing it because he sees this, you know, a uh, very, you know, unique person and like this unique opportunity that he has to change his life completely. And he does like Dr. King Schultz uh, is a fucking real one. <laughs> like, like that, like there's no doubt about it, especially given the context of the years that they're in, mm-hmm. you know, cause I think a lot of it is, uh, and we'll get into it is, uh, I've talked on some other podcasts, is people look at things in 2022 eyes. You cannot look at things in 2022 eyes while trying to understand the 1800s. You know, like, I, it's a film, and we understand that people are writing things, but there's a lot of what this movie is, is written in the vein of the time frame it's portraying. So to pretend that it's something other than that, I was on a podcast talking about um, Stranger Things and the young man who is, who they're basically Will, who's who's gay in the show, but doesn't actually say anything, and why that would be. Well, because in 1986 or 85, when that show is going on, being out as a gay person was still not a very popular thing. The AIDS epidemic was going on, mm-hmm. so people were not as you know resounding to it. So that's why in the episode he doesn't say anything. It's not because you know they're not uh, pro LGBT. It's that if you're going to do a show based in 1985, just like if you're going to do a movie based in the 1800s, a year to two years before the Civil War, it needs to feel right. So for I mean, he's as progressive as you could possibly be, especially I mean because obviously he comes from Europe, so there was a big thing about that. But yeah, he like you said, he is. He's a real one, especially considering the times that he's in. Mm -hmm. And he's also an immigrant, too. So, you know, he, you know, relates to Django sort of on a level. But um, as far as, uh, you know, Tarantino versus characters to shout out that we're not going to talk about, um, I got to shout out my boy Rick Dalton. Uh, (laughs) Rick Dalton. Also, another real one. He's a great fucking friend. Yeah, he's a good friend. He's a a straight-up stand-up dude. Uh, you know, very humble, very, uh, I like how, you know, like just, you know, quietly meditative he is and like, just like kind of has a lot going on, but also, uh, is just at peace with it in a, in a certain way. And, um, you know, and just, uh, his, his humbleness and, uh, he's, you know, he's fucking funny. He's a badass. <laughs> like, uh, you know, he looks great while he's fixing antenna on the roof. <laughs> um, I mean, fuck. Like, I mean, I, I do think, uh, you know, Brad Pitt's best performances come from Tarantino because, you know, Aldo, Aldo Reigns would have been, you know, probably my number three because he is, you know, Aldo Reigns, another, you know, great one. Yep. I mean, how can you hate someone that sole mission is he just wants to murder his many nazis as possible you, you can't you can't argue with the man so um, just covered that last yeah. month yes sir yeah so more, more 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 roles like this for brad pitt and this is a new question that has been rolled in from the kill bill episodes thanks to mr ryan rebelkin who was also on jackie brown and in kill bill volume two he was the one who kind of brought it up to me and i thought you know it's a great question we're going to ask it Whose career would you like to see Tarantino give a boost to with his last film if, in fact, this is coming up? Whatever it ends up being is his last film. Ooh, so come, so we're talking people right now who I would want to see. Yeah, see, they get a, a boost. Tarantino yeah, film to give yeah. them a boost. Ooh, man. I wish I would have had a minute for this And one, it doesn't necessarily have question. to be like um, Travolta, which obviously resurrected his career. It could always be like what you're saying. It like, could be a Pitt or a Leonardo DiCaprio who really, when they're in his films, I mean, they really shine. Like most people in his films shine unbelievably. There are two exceptions that I've brought up. Ryan Rebelkin does not believe Daryl Hannah is very good as L Driver. 
and Mr. Ian Harris and mm-hmm. Graham Jones and myself don't believe that uh, Eli Roth is very good as the Bear Jew. We would have preferred somebody else. So those are the two who don't, for some, don't man, uh, don't meet the bar. But I mean, two out of all the people he has, it's pretty good. That's interesting. I was on a podcast where we were um, where we were replacing uh, movie characters with Nick Cage, and I yes. almost went with uh, him as the Bear Jew. Ooh. Uh, which would have been fascinating. But uh, so people right now, you know, a couple choices that came to my mind, someone that I just find would be interesting, uh, Aubrey Plaza. Oh, it's a hell of an answer. She has made some very interesting indie films the past few years. Uh, she has uh, a range yes. that people don't really talk about. Um, and I think her delivery of his dialogue would just be out of this world. It just, I don't know, makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, it's been a, uh, we've kind of, uh, been a minute since, uh, we've had a female led Tarantino yep, film. True. I think that would be nice, uh, to see, like have her like really like take the lead as like, I don't know, like I would like to, for him to like, maybe go back into noir vibes mm. and have Aubrey Plaza as like, you know, like a messy, messy bartender <laughs> on a noir mission or is something. Is she good or, or bad? Is she know. our heroine or is she our villain? Ooh. Is she the bride or is she Domergoo? You know? She could be it. Actually, yes. Give me her as a villain. Let let Aubrey Plaza go dark. Uh, she's fantastic in Ingrid Goes West, and I think she could push that even further with Tarantino. Would be yeah. That would be something. And uh, uh, one other pick that I have, who I don't know, I feel like might get thrown out a lot, but he's one of my favorite actors of all times. So I'm kind of surprised he hasn't been in a Tarantino film. Uh, which would be Christian Bale. Oh, yes, yes. Another good one. Uh, Christian Bale and Tarantino yeah. together just sounds like fucking electricity. Yes. Like, I, I think that would be really great, especially in the stages that yeah. they're in now. You know, they are both have been doing this for yeah. a long time. They've been on top for a long yeah. time. And like, you know, I think that would be just really cool to see, you know, like two people at the top of their game just, you know, dancing out, like let letting Bale just like go go bigger than he's like went in years, you know, like that would be something. He was really good as a gore, the God butcher in uh, love and thunder recently. So, I mean, again, he's going in the MCU verse and he comes out as one of the best villains they've had. So yeah. And he's got such range, such range. He can play good, bad. He can play everything in between. He's one of yeah, the best. Absolutely. He can do it. He, he can do it all. And again, I'm just like shocked that he like, hasn't like yeah. fit into a Tarantino film somewhere. Like, Hell, I could see him in this being like one of the plantation <laughs> oh, owners, yes, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Like, like that would have been like something. So, uh, yeah, Bale, what are you doing? There we go. All right, so this is the portion of the show where I impart upon you some pie-may-like wisdom about the things that have happened in the movie. But I will also ask you if you know some of the stuff as well. Here's some fucking facts. Jack. Our first thing we're going to get into is fucking 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 watched uh, Django with Buddy and I counted how many times they said the N-word. <laughs> I didn't count how many times they said fuck. And it's all the iterations of the word fuck. So really, it's pretty much fucking motherfucker in this one. So if I'm guessing, I'm going to go, I'm going to throw out 
385. <laughs> that is very high. This actually has Michael oh, Jordan okay. numbers. It's only 23. Now, obviously, like you said, we're really? going to get into how much, how many times the N word is used. Yeah. So actually, it's not as much swear. Like, there's not as much swearing, but there because the N word is used so much more than anything mm-hmm. else. I think that's what I was comparing it to because, like, I, I couldn't find the original count because this was back in college, like ten years ago. But uh, I think I counted like two seventy, two sixty five. It's like somewhere in that ballpark, maybe for, for the N word. Oh well, actually, well, that's maybe even a little high. Well, we'll get into that in a second. Body count. How many deaths are there? How many bodies hit the floor in this movie? Mm, okay, so I'm, I've been going big, so let me rein it in. Let me think realistically <laughs> here. Think about how many employees of this plantation. I'm going to go I'm gonna go uh, 37. Ooh, a little low. It's actually three times the fucks. It's 69. 69 nice. deaths. You're also probably forgetting the, uh, the montage as well. Oh, yeah, where, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the montage. The, the Bonnie montage. Hunter montage. That sweet little montage. In the I love that that's their on the road again montage is bounty hunting. <laughs> yes. Great. Yes. <laughs> great choice. Yep. To, and to a great song, like a, a Jim Croce song that's just really kind of just like a nice driving song. It's fantastic. Now, this wouldn't be a Tarantino movie without some bare feet. Ooh, some bare feet sightings. How many bare feet do we get in this oh, film? I mean, well, there's a lot because most of the slaves don't wear shoes. Surprisingly, there's moments where they don't, but then there's moments <sighs> where they do. So a lot of, yeah, so it it changes based on the section of the mean, film we're in. Because I'm thinking, I mean, I, I can think of some real blatant ones. Like, yep. you know, the Mandingo fight, Jamie Foxx yep. upside down. Yep. Uh, so are we, am I talking about shots of feet or how many individual feet, individual feet? So how many times the, a character has bare feet in a scene? And it could be characters. Then I'll say I'll say eight because we have some walking scenes. You're very close. You said eight. Is that what you said? Eight. Mm-hmm. It's, it's thirteen actually. Okay. So yeah, the most bit. is like you said. We get quite a few uh, in the beginning when Django is being walked from the auction, uh, and then we get some towards the end as well. But yeah, mm-hmm. Django does. He's barefoot a couple times, and and yes, the Mandingo scene. There's Carrie Washington twice when she's pulled out of the mm-hmm. hot box, and also when she is laying on the bed towards the end when yeah. he shows up and saves her for yeah. the second time. Yeah. A lot of, lot of feet. A lot, lot of feet. And probably smelly ones, too, unfortunately. The thing Ooh. is, though, is, like, Ooh. you know, he gets a lot of shit for, like, people, you know, for over-sexualizing him this sometimes. And, you know, when you go back and there's certain films where he does, where, he, you know, he uses them, but they're also, as I said, a, char- a character attribute that he, he lets us know. There are other times when they're just barefoot and it just makes sense. You know, like they're just barefoot. It's it's makes sense when there's they're barefoot. Nothing, there's nothing sexual about it. And this one it's like actually nothing. like very like impactful because like a lot yeah. of the times it's like you're seeing them like they're tattered up because they yep. haven't been like walking in shoes for a while. They're bloody, yep. they're beat up, like you know, like these are like it lived in feet, you know. Yes. So it's like it really does like actually add like a lot to a lot to it. Next up. The motherfucking Tarantino-verse. So this is the section of the Tarantino-verse connections. Now, I have three concrete connections and three sort of. Number one. My first concrete one is, once again, Red Apple Cigarettes makes its appearance. Django has a pouch of Red Apple tobacco when he first meets Calvin during the Mandingo fight. Mm-hmm. Red Apple has also made an appearance in Pulp Fiction from Dust Till Dawn, Four Rooms, Kill Bill, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number two. The second one. Is Dr. King Schultz 
Either it's his estranged wife, daughter, or sister, which really unknown who she truly is in his life. But Paula Schultz is the body that Bud and his little pal exhume so that they can bury the bride alive in her grave in Kill Bill Volume 2. She is the Whoa. Paula Schultz of the lonely grave of Paula Schultz. What? Yes, sir. Oh, we're going to get one more for that's you. That's a good... Whoa. Didn't know that one. Number three. Crazy Craig Coons is a member of the Schmitty Bacall gang. He is the great-grandfather of Colonel Coons of the Gold Watch fame from Pulp Fiction. Played once again by my man, Christopher motherfucking Walken. Uh, uh. Now our sort ofs. Once again, we go to the Schmitty Bacall gang. One of the members of the Schmitty Bacall gang is named Gerald Nash. This name was also used as one of the police officers killed by Mickey Mallory in The Natural Born Killers, also written by Tarantino. And has the same last name as Marvin Nash, who was the cop that his ear cut off in Reservoir Dogs. Now, as I said in the Natural One Killers episode, and I'll say it once more here, there's been no confirmation that any of the Nashes are related. However, does Tarantino ever do anything by chance? Just something to gnaw on until we get full confirmation. Hmm. It sounds like uh, it, it, <laughs> might, it, it might be like one of those things that uh, my my uh, my DM for like his NPCs that like just like don't really matter. They just get standard frat br- frat guy yeah. names. <laughs> maybe be, maybe yeah. that's what he does for uh, you know. He's just like uh, could uh, be. make him another Nash, whatever. Yeah, so just give him a generic white last name. Nash and Nash. done. Now, this is something that's been talked about a couple of times, and I'm going to kind of clarify because I really looked at it hard today when I was finishing up this movie to talk with you. Django's green coat is seen in the Hateful Eight and Minnie's haberdashery. However, how his coat got there is unknown, but it definitely wasn't from Django because when he returns from making his way back from the, the Dickey people and he goes into the barn and he grabs her papers, he takes his coat, which is in there, and he throws it on the ground and grabs just his hat. He leaves that green coat behind. So if it is his coat and not someone else's green coat, how it gets to Minnie's haberdashery, we will never know, but it did not get there via Mr. Django himself. So what would be the year difference between so, well that's what I'm gonna get to this one right here. Okay. Because the next one is Django's saddle. Apparently many believe his saddle is the one that's on Major Warren's dead horse in the hateful eight when we first come upon Mr. Warren. His horse has died, he couldn't make it through the winter. Mm. Now since the events of Django happen about eighteen months to a year before the Civil War starts and the hateful eight takes place Probably four to five years after the war ends, it's likely that Django could have sold that saddle and or horse mm-hmm. to Warren sure. after his bounty hunter days are over. Since they were, he probably went west. You know, if I were, if you're going to get away from the south, you go west. That would where I would probably go. Probably he went in the ways he went when he was bounty hunting with our man, Mr. Schultz. So he could have sold it. Now, there is no way in hell, given what we know about Major Warren, that he would ever kill Django. Some people believe he might have because he's a bounty hunter, and they say something about the bounty hunter is going to get you. There is no fucking way. No. Given what we know about Major Warren and what he did at that fort and burned and how much he hates the Civil War people, he is not going to go after Django because he killed fucking Calvin Candy and a bunch of white slavers. He yeah. would celebrate him, which is why I believe possibly, mm-hmm. because he would probably be a little older, he may have sold and maybe you know he's retired now and he gave him his horse or mm-hmm. his saddle so that Major Warren can go off and continue the killing of necessary white people well, in, in the movie. 
I so could, that's just my could, feeling on it, but there's no way that Django is mm. killed or hunted down by Major Warren. I mean, unless he no. maybe he came upon the person who, you know, if they're saying Django got killed, maybe Warren hunted down the person who killed Django or whatever, you know, if that's the lore. But there's no fucking way. None. That those two guys are fighting. No, I can buy them sitting down and having a pint and, you know, and then being like, oh, hey, yeah, I'll cut you a deal on the saddle. I mean, yeah, I mean, because, I mean, if we learn, we do learn that through that movie, which will be next month's movie, that um, when they're, he's talking to Mexican Bob about the stew and he talks about a guy on the plantation that he knew made the stew. So clearly, Major Warren was also himself a slave at one time. So if... This is in the same lore. The slaves would eventually have heard about Django and Candyland. They it would have gotten oh, around. Yeah. Oh yeah. So he'd be a legend. Warren would have yeah Warren would have seen him as a hero and may have gotten into the bounty hunter business because of mm-hmm. what of Django. So you know, let's come on, folks. You know? and Warren you know? and Django are not fighting each other. It's just not happening. I'm sorry. So no. I usually don't shit on people's uh, little theories, but that theory there's no. There's no way it even holds water because of, if you watch the two movies, what we know about the two gentlemen. There's no way Major Warren is doing anything to Django unless Django provokes him for some stupid reason, which would make no sense in this world. No, I like I like the your theory that like you was probably inspired by Django because I'm sure Django inspired a lot of people, you know, with his actions. Yes. He was probably, you know, he would go on to be a legend in his own right and probably inspire a bunch of people to get into the bounty hunting business. So, like, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case at all. All right. Well, I'm glad you're on board, too, because, you know, <laughs> I, although I'm not forcing it, but it does, it doesn't feel like it's a thematic uh, smart move that those two are going to fight each other no. ever. No, just wouldn't make sense. And those were the facts, Jack. And now the gospel, according to the almighty Tarantino. Chapter 10, Django Unchained. Now, before we get into the good stuff, well, just kind of some information that's awesome about this movie. This is Tarantino's highest grossing film to date. It racked in $425 million at the box office. Pretty nice. damn impressive. Nice. And it's one of the highest grossing westerns of all time. Nice. It's also the first western to win the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay since Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid in 1969. And it's the first to win an award for acting in the same category since Unforgiven in 1992. The movie, along with True Grit in 2010, repeated a rare pattern where 20 years earlier, two westerns, the others being Dances with Wolves, were nominated for Best Picture two years apart. So Dances with Wolves got nominated in 1992 on Forgiven. In 2010, it was True Grit. In 2012, it was the glorious Django Unchained. Wow. However, only Dances with Wolves and Unforgiven, I believe, won. Mm. But obviously, True Grit and this did not win, which we won't get into that. This is also Tarantino's first movie not edited by the great and now late Sally Menke. She died in 2010. Mm. Fred Raskin has taken over since he assisted her on Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. All right. So we're going to start off by talking about the elephant in the room right out the gate. This film holds the all-time record for most uses of the N-word or some variation of the N-word in a movie. Now, what I was able to find, they chalk it in at 116 uses. Now, that being said, there could be more or maybe less. But, you know, when people are counting, sometimes, like even when I was counting sometimes for things, all of a sudden you get wrapped in the movie and you forgot. You're like, damn it, did he just say the F word? Mm -hmm. Did I just see feet? You know what I mean? Sometimes you're sitting there, I'm counting. And then all of a sudden you get sucked in because you go some moments without either things happening. And you go, damn it, I missed one. So I had to rewind back. But this, I was speaking with you prior to recording this. We did the last episode. We Mm kind of talked about this at the end. There is a... And I will try to put it uh, on the socials for this if I remember, because obviously we're doing this about a month and a half in advance, and probably by the time it comes, I'll forget. But I'll try to remember, and maybe you can remind me if I don't. There is an interview with Quentin Tarantino on 
Sway, who is was a DJ, or is a DJ, but also was a MTV VJ back in the, I want to say 2000s? Was it early 2000s? I mean, yeah, I mean, he's still doing, I mean, he's still doing radio stuff now, but... Uh... No, I know he's still a DJ, but like he was, he he got famous because he was on, you know, he got, yeah, I think his face got more notarized, yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, he was, uh, did the news segments on yeah. uh, MTV and stuff, yeah. He is a DJ in Chicago, and he had Tarantino on around the release of this film. And so there's two things I want to talk to you about with it, and we're going to get into the the unfortunate or fortunate, however you want to look at record that this movie holds. When he was on there, Tarantino, you know, he 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 talked about, and they talked about the use of the word, and they talked about how um, Samuel Jackson defended it. But it was also a moment, as I spoke said to you, is Sway considered this to be the very first black superhero film. He felt that Django. And not Shaft, which some people you know may have thought Shaft earlier on, but he felt Django was in fact that. So I will now give you the floor to give how you feel about one the use of this the, the word that is you know I mean it's spattered throughout, and then also how you feel about what Sway said and about where is Django and does Django Unchained work as a superhero movie? I mean, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have power, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I understand why it would definitely be viewed as a superhero. Well, so so with the with the use of the N word, so it's it's very fascinating that you know I find that every I mean yeah like every use of it in this film is justified. I mean, like, you know, context obviously matters. And, like, that is the context of the film. Like, and and I find it interesting, you know, people that find it uncomfortable. And it's like, yeah, because it should. Because this is how it was, you know? Like, you know, I feel like people, you know, like, it's about being like, oh, like, we know, but you don't got to show us. Like, no, no, I, I do need to show you because, like, this is, like, this is... It, it, that makes it real, you know, like just talking about it doesn't, it, or or just knowing about it doesn't make it real, you know? So it's like, yeah, if it is, if it makes you uncomfortable, like, yes, it, because it's supposed to confront you in that way. And it's fascinating because in say early Tarantino work, um, it specifically I'll say uh, Reservoir Dogs and uh, True Romance, his use of the N words in there are so just, not cool like they're not cool like those are my two least favorite tarantino scripts you know for some of those reasons and and you can see where you know he learned things my my theory is because like those are early tarantino and as soon as he met samuel jackson pulp fiction i have a theory that they just sat down and had a talk at some point and was just like hey look man all right like this is this is the way things are and then when it came to django and says all right if you're gonna do it like you're gonna do it because it means something like, and because like, you know, like, you know, because really when you think about it, uh, the, the time frames between like, say, uh, I mean, I haven't seen Jackie Brown, but from Pulp Fiction and through this, his films generally don't really use it. Or, or if they do, it's not, you know, frivolous like it was in those earlier films just to mm-hmm. show that a character was a piece of shit. You know, yeah, it's yeah. like there's many other ways you can do that besides using that. So it's like I hated the way he did it in his early days. For for this film, it's 100% justified. And if you feel uncomfortable, it's because you should. And I'm totally with Sway. Like, I honestly look at Django and like Django. I look at Django in the way that I look at like Blade. Like, like that is like, you know, he, he is a black superhero for me. I even wrote in my notes like 
You know, there's a, <laughs> there's a scene where Django is, uh, you know, shooting the bottles in the snowman and that's him like literally discovering his superpower. He goes, Oh, yeah. I have this like in crazy accuracy, like, and like, he like figures out like his superpower and like, that's fucking awesome. And like the, the very first outfit he chooses for himself is a fucking costume. Like he doesn't, yeah, yeah. he doesn't choose a regular outfit. He has this first choice to like finally pick out his own clothes yeah. and he, you know, goes with the most eccentric costume he can. Like he, and, and just like in the, the, the journey they goes through and like the, the bombastic nature that he does it all in, you know, is just like, yeah, like it is all very superhero esque. This is a superhero origin story of him, literally going from absolutely nothing and then like, you know, becoming his own man. Uh, you know, he literally like wrestles the film away from Christoph Waltz and like yes. takes the movie for himself because like, you know, that is his superhero origin story. So I'm 100% with that. You're right. He's the Siegfried. So like when he, Waltz tells the story about mm-hmm. Siegfried, Brunelli, he is the Siegfried. Like, this is 100% a superhero story. He goes through so much to get to the end goal. And from the moment, you know, from when we meet Django until the end of the film, he goes through such a change, like mm-hmm. an unbelievable change from this slave who doesn't even want to repeat what he says when he's asked a question, if he know if he came from the Karukin farm to, <laughs> to say goodbye to the white people and she shoots candy sisters. She goes through and through. Like the change from that to blowing up Candyland is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Like it is a complete 180. It goes from a man broken to a man who will never be broken and will probably go on to break more change. You know, I, I think the bounty hunter days were just him, you know, like you said, learning to become Superman or the Batman type character. Now he's going to go on and become the dark knight or you know he's going to go on and do other things just like yeah it's going to be unreal like yeah like he is so empowered by the end of it like yeah that it literally is his superpower that like and he he will be now the boogeyman for the south yes he will be a southern boogeyman they will tell stories people will be watching Mm -hmm. out for him yep Mm -hmm. yeah it's yeah we'll we'll get into that as we get to it but yeah Mm -hmm. like you said this movie does need to confront especially in what we have in america i don't usually try to get too political on this but the whole Everyone not wanting to deal with what America, how it was founded, how we've built things in this country. Everyone wants to turn a blind eye to that white America, that is, and mm-hmm. doesn't want to give any kind of credence. They don't want to talk about our, we don't want to talk about our, our dark past. We don't want to talk about the the flesh that we built this country on mm-hmm. and the people that we have held. They may not be in chains anymore, but there's a lot of chains that were put into our systems that have kept people down. A lot of Americans, white Americans, want to turn their eyes to it. And rewatching this again, it's weird because, you know, I've seen it a couple of times, but now with, you know, especially with the way of the temperature in this country has been, this movie, poof, it, I mean, it just, it puts it in your face. It just shoves it in your face and you just, you have to confront it. We can't, it's... we can't move on as a country. We can't be anything. Like when we talked about Inglorious Bastards, the Germans hate their history, but they've confronted it and they hate it. They, you know, they, they don't, they're tired of playing the Nazis. Like they hate it. They hate Nazis. They hate what that was and how it stained their country. We mm-hmm. as Americans should feel the same. We should hate what we have done. We should hate what we, we should confront it. We should make sure it never happens again. We should do whatever we can mm-hmm. to rectify the, the damage we have done on so many levels. Not just, like you said, pray. Like We're talking from the Native Americans to, to present day. We have shit and stepped on so many people. 
and yet still claim that America is the greatest country and we don't want to take that take ownership mm-hmm. of the shit that we have created and what we've done. So I mean, because you're because you're a teacher and like you know, and yes. I'm you know, I'm sure you've you know taught various curriculums and you know from to put into context, uh, I'm from I'm from Missouri and you know what you want to know what I learned about slavery in, <laughs> in school. I can uh, only imagine the, the what I learned about in slavery in school was like yes they they took uh, you know people from Africa enslaved them and uh, used them to uh, to pick cotton and to make things out of cotton. That's it. That's I mean, it. They just 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 a workforce. That's it. No, but, not, nothing else happened. And yep. it almost makes it be like oh that's not that bad. Like I mean it, it, obviously it's still terrible but like like when you just no, like, no, oh, yeah. oh it was like you know they help make clothes and clothes are important you can almost start to justify it. It's whitewashing. But it's like they literally it was so much more than that, you know, because like, you know, they didn't, you know, it it took, you know, my dad sitting me down and making me watch Roots, you know, to like truly understand things and like to be like, no, like this is, you know, history. This is what, you know, like things look like. And like uh, it was, oh, my God, the most uncomfortable experience ever. Jeez Louise. Like literally me watching Roots with my dad watching me on the side. Oh man, but because like there is just so much more, and like again, it's just like it, it's not enough to just like know or to read about you know certain things. To any the, the, there's a scene in particular that like I think really punctuates this in the film where uh, whenever they go to Big Daddy's ranch and <laughs> uh, and Django is uh, whipping one of the brothers. I mean, he's whipping him for a a good like you know solid you know few minutes. I mean, he's just mm-hmm. going to town on him, and he's relishing in it. You know, because like it's all this anger that is like come out on him, and like you're watching that, and I could see, I could see a movie critic sitting here watching this and being like, "Oh man, the the violence of certain scenes are gratuitous, uh, the the whipping of people, and blah blah blah." Be like, "Yeah, it's awful. It sucks." Now watch it for a few minutes, like really let it sink in. You know, yeah. like something about that, uh, and and also like letting it sink in, but then also it being like you know, how empowering you like seeing the, like, you know, like it was literally Django releasing like years of demons in that moment. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and so it's like, and, and for it to linger that long was absolutely necessary, you know, to capture that feeling because like, this is how like brutal things truly were, you know, like, so it's like, you, you can't bat, you, you can't hold back. You can't hold back. Two minutes prior, we had the flashback of Django mm-hmm. remembering his wife being whipped mm-hmm. by these same pieces of shit. Exactly. You, you can't hold back. Like you, you, you very much can't like, and I couldn't see a version of this movie that is toned down in any, in any way, you know, like, I mean, like this is, and like, this is why I think it is one of Tarantino's films because like, you know, so many people will question like in a lot of his films, like how much of this is necessary? You know, how much of this do you need to put in? Do you need to, how much of it needs to actually be on screen? And I feel like this is the maybe one film in his filmography that you cannot ask that of. You literally can't. Like there is no, is any of this necessary? Because yes, it is necessary. Like is an exaggerated version of, you know, the the history. Yes. But it is also like still like those parts aren't exaggerated. No, you know, the, no, the, exactly. You know, you know the, the parts that are exaggerated are, you know, you know, the, the theatricality of it all. Yes. Uh, but like the actual content of it, that's not exaggerated. Yeah 
underrated whatsoever, you know? So it's like, I feel like this is truly the one film in his filmography that like cannot be questioned when it comes to like in that department. How much of it do you think, because he is a white director, how much of it did that help be able to tell this story? Because I feel like if a Spike Lee tried to tell this story, he's not going to get the money. The The company's going to be like, oh, here we go. He's, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to provoke this and that. Where Tarantino, because he has a track record up to this point, you know, we had fun making, you know, going after the Nazis. So, okay, let's, it's a Django. He's going to do a Western. Okay, that Django one's about a spaghetti Western. So how much of this do you think he was able, and I mean, it probably helped to be at the Weinsteins, uh, you know, as big a piece of shit they were, but they were pretty fluid. But if you remember Miramax mm, at the time, mm. and I can't remember if they broke away. I think this might be Weinstein. So they broke away from Miramax, which means they were no longer owned by Disney. So if this was still a Disney. This probably doesn't get made. How much of was he able to actually use his white privilege, for better lack of term, to actually help get a movie made that would not have probably got made by any black director because Hollywood would not have done it? I mean, yes. And I thank him for it. I do because it's, you know, Spike Lee was such a, a fantastic, uh, you know, choice there because, uh, you know, Spike Lee has, you know, done these movies that make these statements. But when when has he ever gotten that kind of budget? You know, when? You know, he's never gotten anything like this. And, you know, and like, would Spike Lee be able, like, if Spike Lee was, you know, in 2010, you know, like pitching this movie around? Yeah. Would he have gotten the same uh, money and treatment and everything? Yeah, probably not. Even though he is, you know, still a very highly esteemed, respected director. And that's just, you know, that is just fucking Hollywood still. Yeah, it It, is. But, and and it's also, it, it wouldn't have happened if Tarantino wasn't white. It was, and like you said, it also wouldn't happen if he didn't do Bastards already. Like yes. if he if he tried to do this before Bastards, it would I I, I think it would have been a little bit trickier to happen. But because he did do Bastards first, I think that helped his case a little bit. Not because Tarantino's Jewish, but because he is still white, and it's that uh, I won't get into that. But no, you're absolutely right. It's but, it's, it's uh, whitewashing. It's it is yes. what it is. So we, we got to call it what it is. And, you know, but, but I think it is very much that though, like it wasn't opera, it's not opportunistic in a way that like, you know, he said, oh, I'm going to, you know, do this to exploit, you know, a black story. Like this is like, I mean, at least for me, like when I watch this, like I feel nothing but like empowered energy from it. And like, you know, and you know, you can, uh, him and Jamie Foxx were very collaborative on the project as well. You know, and that really comes through in the in the way that it's you know just it it feels like I don't know it, it's interesting in a way because like since this already does draw on like you know such heavy influences on you know uh, what well known Western stories yeah that the the movie and story like kind of tells itself and Tarantino didn't have to do. I mean, not not to say that he's not doing a lot with his direction here. He is, but it, it doesn't feel very forced in any way. Like his style feels very just like is, he's he is the vessel for the story itself. Like I don't hear anything. Not saying that I don't hear anything that Tarantino's saying, but that's not the loudest voice that I hear whenever I'm listening to like what this film is trying to say. You know, I I'm hearing a story of you know true you know American history told in a way that is you know favorable in in our light you know in african american light rather than the version that is told you know through history books you know that is at yeah. the end of the day still written by white people most likely you know no, so 100 like, and again like mm-hmm. he, you know tarantino does have things he personally wants to say in the film and that's you know and that's totally there but it's not what i'm hearing the most 
like, you know, this doesn't feel indulgent in any way. Like this is Tarantino lending his, you know, skills. It's lending his skills, his abilities, and, uh, you know, to tell a story, but then also lending his, his, his white skin to also be able to yes. have this, you know, movie be made. So like, and that's the way I see it. And he doesn't pull any punches to start the film because our first view of the slave chain gang is their back. And every single gentleman does not have a shirt on and every single gentleman shows whip marks. You know, I think it opens up like a little bit of a, a rocky pass, you know, and then there's no one there. And then all of a sudden these gentlemen come walking into frame and we've got whipped backs. We've got black slaves being walked barefoot across horrific terrain by two gentlemen on a horse who are, you know, they're comfortable and they're all, all get out. It's cold. like Yeah. And, and they're shuffling. And I was thinking like, again, this is, you know, probably a, a dumb thought, but it's like even back then I get that slavers did not see their slaves as anything but property. If you want to get this commodity that is going to be a workforce home and you're trying to sell it, why would you not have people in a wagon? Why would you walk right. that's people like, barefoot? Like, it makes zero sense. That's like transporting ice cream in plastic bags. Yes. Like, like you uh, know, like, how are you going to keep it cold? Now the quality is, like, you know, that just uh, doesn't even make yes. sense. It doesn't make sense. I mean, outside of just being, I mean, ignorant and just hating people, like, you just spent good money on flesh that you're going to use to either sell yourself or to do work and you're going to walk them i mean if they're saying that they're coming from mississippi the slave auctions to texas that's a fucking haul and we don't know how far into texas they go but that's a fucking haul and these two guys are riding on a horse like the horse is moving almost the horse is basically not walking at all it's like the horse is probably like uh, what what are we fucking doing guys why why am i taking this time it's honestly astounding if it wasn't for you know, humans just being vile and evil. It's astounding slavery lasts as long as it did because it's a terrible business. Awful business it's a, it's model. A horribly, horrible business model. So it's it's astounding. But it, again, just like that, you know, touches in on like it's more than it is more than that. And that's and that's the funny thing that so many people in this Justify, movie yep. will use to uh, to uh, you know to rationalize themselves. I'm just doing my job. It's all business. I'm just trying to make money. Uh, it, like you know, when when Candy is uh, scolding um, Cartanian when he's about to like kill him, he's like embarrassing him. And he's like you know, like trying to make him feel bad because it's like oh, like I'm I, I'm not. I don't want to treat you like this, but it's my business, and it's just. Like, I know I'm supposed to get. Five, yeah. How am I gonna get my five hundred dollars back? Exactly. So, so it's wild. So yeah. So it does. It goes so far beyond the business, obviously. But it's mm-hmm. you know. But the way that people are able to rationalize themselves is is crazy. Well, hats off to Tarantino for being able to insert the absurdity. And bring it to our face through just great characters and great dialogue without, without you know, being too much like, you know, he never spoon feeds anything. He'll always drip it for you. And you just sit there. And as, like, as we talk about it, you go, you look back and like, you're right. Every character, there's always an excuse why it is. It's complete absurdity. Everything about it is absurd. And mm-hmm. it lends to like even in that beginning, like when we first meet Dr. Schultz, there's that absurdity of the the tooth. You know what I mean? Like, like he's able to take elements that you normally would go, what the fuck is this? And make it work because he comes in, you're like, who's this fucking guy with a tooth? And he completely disarms these two brothers. And then the absurdity of like, because we get to see slavery, which I think was the smart move through, like you said, Dr. Schultz's eyes, a foreigner. We should be seeing this through foreign eyes. So should it make sense to us? Mm-hmm. We shouldn't, like you said, we shouldn't just go, well, they just pick cotton. We should be like, what the fuck is happening? Mm-hmm. Because when he does shoot the first 
brother. And again, until he kills Candy, he does everything by the book as far as his code is, which we'll get into him too. He's another mm-hmm. flawed character who does, you know, like an Archie Hickox who says one thing and then one, and later on does something completely different that gets him completely fucked around. Mm-hmm. But when he hands that first black gentleman at the end of the line behind Django after he's on Django, he just hands him the shotgun with the fucking lantern. It's so absurd. Like even oh, the he, slave he is kind of, like, slave, he's looking at the gun. He's, he, he has the slave yeah. holding the lantern for him so he can sign the papers. Yes, but it's on the him. gun. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it's on the shotgun that he hands. So he hands him the shotgun. So he's holding a shotgun with a lantern on it. And even the slave is kind of like, you want me to hold on to the gun? Right. But like you said, the hero moment, the superhero moment, and it's so awesome that we don't even waste time getting Django. The moment Django is free and he's taking the bonds off and he throws the coat, the, the blanket off. Mm-hmm. And even though we see the scars, it's that and moment of go, like, oh, it's, on. it's like, motherfucker. Yeah, he's it's like, on. motherfucker, you, yeah, you should never have taken me off this chain gang. I don't know what this German white dude is doing, but from this moment on, I will never be in these chains again. And mm-hmm. it's just, and Tarantino does it great. It's slow motion. It's intentional. He throws that off. He is basically mm-hmm. throwing off the shackles of slavery. And he's like, no more. Never again will I be a slave. There's something about, you know, I love characters that in films that when you when you think of like realistic superpowers, like, you know, like, you know, what are Django's superpowers? You know, he's got these incredible gun skills. You know what his power mm-hmm. is? It's just sheer willpower, like just, yes. just, just sheer will. And that like there, there's, you know, there's a certain way to be able to portray that, you know, like to be able to frame it and like to be able to perform that, like exude that just like cannot be stopped energy and like you said like once like it is off in this you know in this scene he is never you know until well until the end and until the very end when he willingly gives himself up you know it's different then yes but even then his intelligence exactly gets him through he gets himself out of it again because he's fucking smart it goes to kind of what samuel jackson said where people always ask you know how do you feel about the characters the black characters that tarantino writes and he says i'm always the smartest person (laughs) in the fucking film Mm -hmm. like he makes sure the black characters are always the smartest person like he's even when he's the bad guys he's always the smartest it is steven that figures it out steven's the smartest oh but so is Django. Django knows how to outsmart all these people oh yeah he outsmarts the quintlet dick like he uses the ignorance of the white people in the south to think that black people are nothing but commodity and he realizes that that's now a blind spot for them because they don't see them in anything but there's no way they could fathom that a black person could be smart which is the whole candy thing about mm-hmm. one in a thousand kind of thing that whole bullshit but he uses it to his advantage like again there's another superpower he sees their blind spot he's able to judge and he uses it to their detriment throughout the entire film yeah I mean you pointed it out I mean a little bit ago like you know as far as like highlighting the absurdity of you know just like everything in general and the people behind slavery is you know aside from Schultz, every white character in this movie is absolutely stupid. They're all fucking idiots, and it's it, it's so great because <laughs> yes. like literally, just like all of them are so clueless, literally. Because they've never been challenged by anything. It doesn't have to just be never. black people, but they've never been challenged. Everything has just been they just know each other, and it it's a real it's a real mirror on some of the. As they're called flyover states in America. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to shit on them because it doesn't mean everybody. But it, when you only know you and the people like you and you always have the same mentality, you never grow. Mm-hmm. That's why what people don't understand about diversity. Diversity helps everyone grow. You get to learn different things about life, different ways from other people because you are insulated in your bubble of just who you are, where you were born and what you know. You were born in Missouri. I was born here in New York State. We both come from different places. But through our ways of life of moving around and and 
intermingling with other people, you get to learn about other mm-hmm. people. That's what diversity is. That's why these people are so dumb. It's because the same yokels are doing the same fucking thing. One of the great mirrors of that is when we're on the way to Candy and you see Stone Cipher, that little cabin they all live in. How many guys are in there? How many people live in there? Like nine? Mm-hmm. Like, how are you living better than the slaves? You're a hair above because you're white, but honestly, you're just another piece of shit that Candy and his family live in the big house. Right. You're not that much better. And that's the funny thing is another thing is like they think because, well, I'm white, I'm better than the black people mm-hmm. and that these people have their best interests. Really? How? How so? You, you're living in a one-room shack with a whole bunch of other fucking idiots. They're all gross. And exactly. And just like disgusting and filthy too. Like, but again, like, yeah, like you said, like just that, that one like subtle change like is enough to like, you know, brainwash them, you know, into thinking that like, yeah, mm-hmm. like it, it, that I'm still above you just because of this fact when it's like, Look at us like, yeah, we are on the same level, but like, it's insane. It's yes, insane. yes. And it's, it's all the, and like, and that's where like the addedness of it, because it's all the manipulation, you know, that's all the mind games and stuff like you know, all the physical violence and, and, you know, forced labor and everything, absolutely horrible, disgusting. But I can only imagine, you know, the the mental warfare of it all. Like, that's where it really comes in, you know, and specifically like in that scene when they are walking to Candyland and they're about to, he's about to execute Gartanian. And, you know, it's not, you know, enough to that he's going to execute him. Uh, you know, first he's got to embarrass him. He's got to embarrass him. He's got to belittle him. He's got to make him feel, you know, less intelligent yep. and everything. Got to do all that. And then not only... got to make him beg. Yeah, got to make, make him, him beg. beg. And then not yep. only not just going to execute him either, he's going to do it in, you know, a vile way yep. on top of it. Like, it's all, you know, the buildup of that. Like, he didn't, like, all that so unnecessary. Like, because in it, he already knows that he's gonna die, you know. So it's like that is yeah. like so. It's like the the mental warfare on top of all that, and and the way that you know uh, against the slaves. But like you said, like they manipulate their own people just as much as well. That's a good point for the manipulation. I'm gonna jump back to that scene in a minute. Now, according to critic Alec Ross, the alliance between Django and Dr. Schultz is not as absurd as audience might believe, because in the 1840s, many German revolutionaries and progressives left Europe for the U.S where they often became active in the anti-slave movement. But that being said, as we talked about earlier, Dr. King, the scene where they go to the bar and he's going to sh- he's going to shoot the sheriff and then they're going to get the marshal and it's a little it's a little play on white privilege and how things really work with policing mm-hmm. uh, whether people want to see it or not. He says he he feels bad that he's going to use he hates slavery, but he's going to use the bonds of it for his advantage because he wants to make money. Mm -hmm. Now, like we said, for the time, he's extremely progressive because, one, while he is still using the bonds to force Django to kind of help him, he is also, though, going a lot step further than anyone else who's a slaver, which Django can speak his mind. Django doesn't have to say yes, sir. Like, you know, he doesn't have to do the normal shuck and jive that a slave has to do for his master. But still, he's, you know, he's he's using his white power to, to still control Django. Yes, He's still asking him, he's still asking him to present as such in certain scenarios, which is even, you know, still demeaning, you know, even if he is free, you know, but still asking him to like still put on the charade. And even in the way like that he does it, you know, and like he, when he does explain that and he goes, but still I feel guilty, you know, and like trying to, you know, uh, assure him. But at the same time, like I do, you know, I believe him when he says that. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's uh, in this moment that he's great, but it's a step. I'll say it's a step (laughs) in acknowledging his, his, 
you know, white privilege. Yes, but considering the time frame, no one's acknowledging this in the 1850s. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. Or 1860s. No, no one is. I mean, Christoph Waltz is almost so so progressive. He, he may be more progressive than people are today because he's at least acknowledging the shit he's doing. He's acknowledging that what he's doing is complete for his own goal and he's apologizing for it and then eventually does make up for it. But again, it, most people don't even have that courtesy. Like you said, we're going to teach slavery and look at, I mean, what are we going to do? Some black people, we brought them over. We probably shouldn't have, but they did help make cotton and it did help people get clothes. So, I mean, that's just how easy slavery was you know he also and he also plays it with like a slight aloofness too like there there's also like you know there like because i do feel like you know for most of the time he does like obviously understand it there's even like a few scenes where it's just like simple stuff where he's like kind of off you know he's like surprised to just being like oh like even Django being on a horse threatens you like even that is like like that even like seemed to like genuinely surprise him on just being like I don't get it I don't get you people on the way and the like why you treat these people like so it's like because yeah like you said like in other terms he's like he gets how it and he like but but even in those instances he's just like man like even that you know like just a very simple thing is enough to bother someone, and it's wild. Well, a friend of mine who's also on the podcast, Pat Fornes, who is from France, he explained to me that even in the 1940s, a lot of African-Americans, jazz musicians, left America to go to France because they weren't judged by the color of their skin. They were just judged on basically if they could play. It was basically that. So not that there's color blindness across the sea. Let's We're not going to pretend that there is. But it's a lot less of a white-black thing. Um, I've been watching this documentary on Derek Jeter, and his parents are both mixed. Father was black, mother is white. They met in the army over in Germany, and... While they were there, it was just, these are the two people. Like, no one gave a shit. It wasn't like, you know, like sometimes you see here in America in certain parts, like, ooh, interracial. Interracial over there it was not a big deal. Like I said, it may not be that way across Europe, but in certain sections, it wasn't. It wasn't until they came back, and this is in the 70s, they came back to Michigan, where Jeter was born and grew up, that it was a real fucking thing, that they felt mm. that. That's yeah. So there yeah. is some there is some validity to the fact that the way Schultz is playing it, the way that uh, Christoph Waltz plays it, and the way he is, is he is a bit stunned because it's it's not used to the way that America. And I think Django even says that where, like you're saying about D'Artagnan, and he says, you know, it doesn't look like your your boss has the gills for this, and he goes, he's just not used to his Americans like I am. You know what I mean? Like so, <laughs> there is there is a little bit. Tarantino kind of even makes reference to that, and you know, so I don't want people to think that you know if you watch Schultz that he's like you know. Like some primitive, like some guy who's like slavery. What's that? Like, I, there's a lot of things that he is not used to in his German eyes that Americans we see and go, yeah, no, that that mm-hmm. makes the sense. That's the way things are around this in in this place. And the thing with Schultz is he's always thinking about these things too. And that's the fascinating thing about his characters. His ideas change vastly throughout the like as Django goes through like you know the the you know the physical transformation and like you know becoming his own man. Uh, Schultz is you know having all. Of his ideologies like kind of challenged in in various ways throughout the film even if he's presenting it as one way like if there's anything about schultz he's like kind of two ways about everything and you know but no matter what like you you always see like the gears turning you know and like i love how uh he's very i mean he's just very open-minded he's very intelligent and can present things as such but then he is always just like still waiting and like open to just being like oh okay so like i have been seeing it this way and you know, but I can change it if I look at it this way, you know, and uh, I think that's like kind of 
the the fascinating thing about Schultz throughout the film. I think he also kind of in the beginning also mentors Django without him realizing he's mentoring Django. And that's like with the scene where like, you know, we talk about, you know, him using his white privilege to keep Django in, in kind of in chains. And he has this moment where he kills the sheriff and he's able to walk out of the saloon because he is white and not just have them blow away the saloon if Django had been the one who shot the sheriff who was a bounty. Mm-hmm. And it's when he goes through the whole diatribe of telling them, you know, well, this is the sheriff. I'm, he probably was hired about two years ago. This is who he really is. And then he goes, and now, Marshall, you owe me $200. And you hear Django go, damn. That, that's the moment Django is on board. He goes, okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. He goes, okay, this white man may, may have some of my interests in mind, but he also might help me learn how to kind of dance through this world. That, you know, yes. he's had to, yes, master, yes, master, his whole life just to keep from his wife getting beaten and him getting beaten. He's had to shuck and for, do all this bullshit for he's them. He's learning how to work the system through, yes, through, through Schultz's, Schultz's eyes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it's definitely like kind of like a, a reluctant uh, mentorship in a way. But what I love is that, you know, so it's like we, you know, becomes, you know, first it's just a partnership just for, you know, business purposes. And of course, you know, like, but what I love about like uh, that, like little montage section, like in their bonding a little bit is like, that's when Schultz is like, he learns what his true purpose is. Like Schultz has been, you know, happy with the bounty hunting business because one, he is, you know, making money and he's also, uh, he's getting rid of bad people, which makes himself feel, you know, good about, you know, still killing people and making money off flesh himself, but it makes himself feel good. But I think, you know, what it is, is, you know, over that time is he learns that, you know, what his true calling is. And, you know, it's like, I don't know who I would be able to compare him to, but, you know, it's just like, it's a nice moment that he kind of is like, okay, like, yes, I do have this privilege. And even though I'm using my privilege uh, to do good things, even that's still not enough. I, I shouldn't be using mm-hmm. my privilege to still help myself do good things. I need to help my, I need to use my privilege to help others. So he sees Django as like, no, he's the true champion of, you know, of the people of this movement. He's going to have more power than anything that I could ever do. And that's when, he, you know, he really is just like, you know, I'm, I'm in this for you. And I like how he like, you know, even tries to put it under a guise of, you know, being like, oh, well, you know, I, you know which is still a very sweet moment where he's like, you know, I've never given somebody their freedom and now I feel responsible for you. Yeah. yeah. And he says feels responsible for you makes it, you know, kind of sound like, ah, it's like, I'm kind of obligated to mentor you. But no, like it, deep down, truly, he goes, no, like I'm meant to mentor him. Like this is what I'm, this is what I need to do. And uh, it's it's really beautiful. I think also because of the states he's been working in, he sees what it is and he realizes that if I free this gentleman and I don't at least take him to the north, I can't free him here in Mississippi slash Texas, Tennessee and just leave him to his own. I mean, mm-hmm. free papers or not, they'll tear those up. Yep, they won't. Yep. Th- this this part of the country is not going to validate those unless there's another white person with him. The shit he gets away with the Caneland would never have happened if Schultz wasn't there. So yeah. he does, you know, he does take him under his wing and because of that, you know, he does help him. He does eventually somewhat pay the debt that he owes Django for, <laughs> for, for kind of using him as for slave labor to help him make money and get a bounty. Now, the superhero turn, like mm-hmm. where, where all of a sudden the man become like, like you said, he's got the new costume on. He's like, okay, here's my turn. The whipping. When he uses the the Travis Bickle gun, which was intentionally put in the movie by Tarantino because it's one of his favorite movies from Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. When he uses the Travis Bickle gun and shoots 
the first uh, brother, the uh, brittle brother, and then whips little Raj. If you get a chance, I mean, Don Johnson's farm, his plantation is, it's the craziest of all of them because there's so much going on. So much is being said in the visuals that you aren't paying attention to. Mm -hmm. We learn instantly that this is, that's really just about greed and money. Uh, We get that from Candy too. Like one minute he doesn't want to do it, but all of a sudden you throw in a bunch of money and all of a sudden it's like, he's like, you know, get the fuck off my land with you and your black guy there. And and now somebody, I got 5,000. Oh, well, come on in. And Mm -hmm. now we're going to treat this guy. It's like, fuck, it's the absurdity. It's crazy. It like sets the table for later. You also kind of learn. Yeah, for Candy. It also like gives you a idea of like, you know, uh, behavior, like the way that people are viewed like in that, yep. that little exchange like oh well how do i treat Django? and uh yep. i love how she goes so i treat him like white folk and he goes no i did not say that <laughs> uh what, what's that uh yeah, that, little what, pickle, yeah. that little pickle with jerry <laughs> and, and it's like wait what so uh, and like it, not to spoil oh. some of the stuff later <laughs> but like uh the the big daddy sequence is like my favorite like scene section of the i of the film. absolutely love it because Don Johnson's great. Is I give <sighs> so give him good. credit because how he has to play this. Mm-hmm. And look, I mean, any one of these actors from Don Johnson, and obviously we'll get into him in, in a little bit here. But Leo, these are not easy roles to play. You are you are playing a piece of shit. Like worse, mm-hmm. you're playing the. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like you can play a Nazi, and that's we. We know it's like okay, it's, we it's a World War Two, no big deal. We know what happens. There. But when you start to, like you said, when you're playing a character that's real and makes America have to sit there and be very uncomfortable, and you have to play this as a, as an actor, and now like you're like you know you were on a show where your partner was black. Like now you're playing this guy who's saying all these horrible things, and you've got to act this way, and it's just like you gotta say a horrible things, but you're also like being made a fool of uh, by the film yes. uh, as yes. well. So it's like yeah, yes. you, you definitely gotta have some humility to it it's like yeah uh, like this is like apparently like you know one of the few uh films that leonardo has ever taken a supporting role on you know like i mean because you yeah. know that but like the the willingness to go there by like him and don johnson but like yeah this, this whole section i think really does so much and it is just like yep. such a great like as the hero emergence for Django. yes um, is, yes oh yeah like i mean as much as i love you know the the um you know, final shootouts and, uh, you know, decimation. It's, this Candy is Land. the moment that this yeah. is, yeah, this is the moment where I am this like, is I, this is, I'm fist pumping, you know, like this is it right there. This is also one of the moments where it happens in front of other slaves. Like the rest of the stuff that happens yes. doesn't happen in front of the slaves. Yes. This happens, and you can watch some of the kids who are up in the um, barn looking down because they're about to whip the girl for dropping eggs. I mean, this is the story that people are already going to yes. start, you know, sending yes. around. You know, like this, this right here, like because it's already so distinct. They're like this slave came in. He was on a horse and this blue crazy in a blue outfit, outfit. and like mm-hmm. you know, and like he just shot. And he kills two white and, boys and, and, and gets away with it first, and then killed. Like, you know, like, so it's like, yeah, I love that, like, this is that inciting incident, like, that is truly where, like, his legend is born. But also in this absurdity, Tarantino slides in two things. One, we get to learn about, they're going to whip a girl because she drops some eggs. Fucking kidding me? Like, like, you're fucking kidding me? But the other thing is, as he's walking, there are different slaves and some are swinging and you're sitting there going, these are slaves swinging, like, almost like they're just kids. What brings to light, it does the same as, and I've, and this is how our education system is really broken, and this whole fight about not talking about slavery that we've got going on in this country, but when I watched Watchmen, the TV show on HBO, I had no idea, and I felt like a fucking moron. I'd never heard of Black Wall Street, had no idea about the massacre in Tulsa, 
until this fucking show happens. Mm. This show happens. I'm watching the show. I'm going, I'm like, man, is this like, is it, was this a real thing? Did Or are he just like, is this just part of the show? And then to find out that it was, you, you feel like a fucking moron that you, one, you realize your education hasn't taught you shit. Mm-hmm. But what this did is it also brings like comfort girls. Mm-hmm. Now, Everyone has heard stories about slave owners sleeping with their slaves. That's nothing new. But the fact that there was not just a... This was basically sex work for free. This is basically, hey, I'm going to go lay down with so-and-so, and and this is going to be my harem because these black females are attractive. And it's also brought to light in uh, 12 Years a Slave. You know, you get to see that kind of happening, but not as... In your faces, this is. Because that was more like we saw Fassbender's character falling in love with a slave, and that whole fight that he had to have between you know his southern gentleman beliefs and his his carnal love but in this one tarantino sprinkles it throughout the film Mm -hmm. with sheba and all this other stuff certain slaves are allowed to get away with things because of their attractiveness and it's just like that holy shit comfort girls like it's you really like he brings to light some things that have been obviously left out of the history books yeah no it's you know one of you know the more vile aspects of the film for sure and like you know the way that you know Django like has to like lay it out pretty explicitly like and like you know like uh you know like that whole exchange like Schultz's you know response when he's like you know doesn't you know he does he's never heard of it but then he instantly can put you know two and two together and instantly goes oh you know and like and the fact that you know they are you know a certain level of you know the the way that they kind of you know you're already treated as inhuman but now it's like you're even less than that like you know you're you're not useful for the you're not useful physically for labor but you know you're not now you're not pretty enough to work in the house so now you're you know now you are literally left to just be exploited you know for you know mindlessly yeah. and like and that is like the you know the the lowest and like the scariest and just like the it's ugh, oh yeah well another thing it does too is it also shines a light on and the, my the best term i could come up with is the helsinki syndrome where when you get, or I'm sorry, <laughs> Stockholm syndrome, uh, where your kidnapper, mm-hmm. you start to you start to view with them, like you actually start to feel for them, even though they're holding you in bondage, and nothing seems to really portray that better than with say house girls or the house folk, uh, especially the comfort girls, like a like Sheba, where she really leans into it, like she mm-hmm. she keeps herself at a status above staying out of the field, so even though. She makes the this is this is gonna sound terrible. I hate how this is gonna but she makes the best of slavery, if that's the best way I can say it. Same with Steven. They take mm-hmm. what they can, they see where they can make their position, and even though they are stepping on the backs of their own people, they're gonna do what they have to do to survive. So it kind of brings to light that, you know, like it's it's not just as clear, you know, like there's a lot of gray in what's going on in this yes. film outside of just this cool, you know, revenge story where uh, a black slave rises up and just fucks up everybody. But there's so much that Tarantino has littered in that isn't in the history books, that isn't talked about. You know, he doesn't sit there and make commentary on it, but he puts it there for you to see. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're really watching, it's it's undeniable that's right there in your face. Well, the, the inclusion of the, you know, dynamics, you know, that it, that, that, that it goes deeper than just like, you know, white people bad you know slavery bad 
things like that. It, he goes, you know, that extra step, you know, because like if you if you just left it at that, then it still feels like, you know, as him being a white director, still kind of doing the bare minimum, you know, when it, yes, you know, agreed. but then he brings in, you know, the, the aspect of, uh, you know, challenging, you know, Django having these challenges of, you know, uh, portraying, you know, a black slave owner when he's like kind of explaining to, you know, Schultz that like, well, that's like kind of the lowest of the low, like, you know, like, you know. Yeah, worse than white slavers, like worse than whites. Yes. So like the, you know, and like asking him to embody that and like, you know, what like, you know, that like does to, to Django psyche, uh, you know, in the middle section of the film. Going into those elements uh, is, is you know, what gives the film, you know, that, that extra oomph. And it also still keeps this like, again, like this is you know, a black story, you know, and, you know, exploring black ideas, you know, and things that were happening in that time, uh, you know, because again, it could have, he could have kept it, you know, a surface level of, you know, just going into the injustices and different connections with the, with the white people, but with, you know, with the dynamics within slavery as well, you know, the, the way that, um, the, the house slaves kind of look at each other, like, yeah, like Sheba, uh, for, you know, Calvin Candy is like, I give, you know, from her, I'm like, that's his girl. That's his, that's his, his, his side piece, I guess, for the best lack of a better term. That is his, and it's like, I don't blame her, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like, but by the way that Django feels, you know, about like her, Steven, I'm like, ugh. Like, God, like, you know, that the fact yeah. that, like, you know, that you're aware, you know, of the situation that you're in, it's like, again, can't fault you. But, uh, you know, for, again, yeah, making the best of it. But at the same time, like, I can totally see that, like, you know, coming from Django's POV of it being like, uh, that you're, you're, you're gross. Or like the way that, yeah. or the way that Samson looks at Django, you know, uh, whenever, yes. you know, that, that it's, it, it's like literally for like five seconds and it said so much like, Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Like it's like, he like when he walked past him, like after he like gets his beer and he like, kind of like just like gives him this look and it's like, he, you know, is imposing over Django. Like he's bigger, he's stronger, like just won this fight. And like, you know, like kind of the fear and like defeat in his eyes and looking at Django is like heartbreaking in that moment. Yep. And uh, I love that that like moments there, like that in that in like that whole section. It's the hardest movie of his for me to watch, but it's also one of the best movies to watch. Like there's so much happening. There's so much just being thrown at you, especially if you sit there and you really start to watch it. Like, yeah, you could sit down. It's not one of those movies you could put down, put on in the background. Right? That's just, mm-hmm. it's not one of those no. movies. It's not like you said, it's not Kill Bill. You just can't throw this on. This is a movie that if you can look past the greatness that is uh, the story that it's being told and, and how awesome it is that we get to watch the rise of Django. Like him become Unchained and become this powerful black man in a time when that was not a thing that could happen. Mm. And him rise up and, you know, outsmart everybody. It makes it worth yeah, it. Yeah, but there's so much being told also. Like there's so much layers and so much greatness going on with just the subtlety of stuff. Like you said, he makes fun of things. Like when after the can- or Candyland, after he leaves uh, Big Daddy, we have the whole hilarious moment of making fun of the KKK <laughs> and the bags and then all that stupidity. Oh and he takes a moment, like he builds us in the beginning. We get this like, oh, feeling of ick. We get a moment of levity. We get to kill some, and I'm all for killing racist KKK, just racist people. Anyways, but I've, I've loved it. Like the whole, I gotta say, the whole bag thing. Is, <laughs> yeah. That scene is 
amazing again like you said it's like kind of it's perfectly placed um you know like it's kind of been tense up to that point and it's just like yep. even though like you know we are coming off like the the, the ass whooping hand we, yep. we can't we come off of that but then it's like oh shit now they're like after them you know and it's like no 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 it's okay like don't don't worry they're they are gonna have a moment to enjoy this you know yeah. and like shields basically helps him again i'm not saying like he, jango couldn't have done this himself but because where jango's coming from he's being mentored he's seeing that okay how to use their ignorance and hatred against them to outsmart them, which is what he's able to do you know, later end, on anyway. It all comes yes. back around. I also got to say, I remember uh, distinctly seeing this movie in theaters with my dad. And I remember during the, the bag scene is maybe the hardest I've ever seen my dad laugh at a movie. Like, I mean, both of us, <laughs> both of us were in tears during the scene because like, it's the fucking whiplash hilarious. of like just like where it comes in like because like it literally just ratchets up the absurdity an extra five levels uh, for like a minute you know and then brings the film back down it's like it's just so amazing and i just remember just like it's the absurdity crying. of the moment some guy spent his whole day some guy's wife spent his whole day cutting eye holes and she couldn't get that fucking right and then it actually is tarantino's best acting job because we don't see him we're gonna get into his, what he does later in the film which ugh. But he oh, is yeah, the yeah. guy who's kind of like, maybe next time we wear bags, but this time we don't. So he leans into his Tennessee roots. <laughs> you know he knows people like this. He clearly hates people like this. I mean, if anyone thinks Tarantino is a fan of racism or any of this stuff, I know he uses the N-word a lot. But you look in his films. Racist people die horrible, yes. horrible deaths. Oh, 100%. Horrible deaths. His, his biggest, strongest characters are usually black or females for the most part. I mean, he's got other guns. A lot of his best villains are white people, like, except for Steven. Steven does. Steven, Steven plants himself in there Fucking but that was Steven. Samuel's point he wanted mm-hmm. to do but like it's just an absurd scene but he's so good in that moment when he has the bag on you can kind of hear his voice a bit but he's that's his best but it's that absurdity but also it shines a light of how stupid these people really are like the stupidity of it and my favorite moment of it is not the explosion it's not all that it's Django and Schultz going he's gonna get away he goes I got him I got him and then he hits him and we just see the blood come down the white horse. Mm-hmm. So much, so much symbolism. A lot of blood in on that white shot at all in this yes. movie in general. Lots of blood splatter on cotton on the white horses. Yes, I love it. Love it. It's the moment that also Schultz goes, "Oh shit!" Like Django is. That's because Django's the one who takes the shot, and he's, I think is that the I think he, he goes, "Oh, the yeah, he goes, the boy's the, the natural." natural yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and then we jump into and it's like it's funny because we go from this funny scene and then we jump into this montage of we have to get through the winter and obviously he hears the story about you know we, we get the great story about Siegfried and who Broomhilda is and we find all this stuff out and you know uh, the great moment of like what you know get killed white people and, not, and get paid for what's not to <laughs> like which I use in my uh, in my intro so I fucking love it because I, I'm all in I'm. All all in with Jingle. Like, I am there with him. I'm like, let's go. Let's take out this whole fucking regime of stupidity. Also, it feels like it becomes like a buddy picture, doesn't it? Because now it's like, mm-hmm. we get happy music and he's shooting guns and they're killing people and we get our first moment of him shooting people in the dick when he shoots the fucking... <laughs> <laughs> it's foreshadowing when he shoots Frosty the Snowman in the dick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're just kind of like, oh, this is... You're kind of like, oh, all right, this is going to be awesome. You know what I mean? And you forget, we forget that it's a movie about slaves at that moment. You know, 
I've noticed in this movie, like Tarantino is so good at doing two things at once in this movie. It really feels like he's just like in some kind of zone, you know, it's like this feels like uh, this feels like, uh, you know, when you're setting the high score on uh, the three point shootout, like arcade <laughs> game, like that's Tarantino in this movie because he's like just in a really like really good rhythm of like there's always two things going on at once because like you said, like, yes. you know, we're, we're learning. You know, like that is Django, you know, learning about himself, but that's also foreshadowing something else for later or the scene uh, earlier on when um, he, you know, just a textbook, you know, scene of his is he goes in, tells the person, okay, hey, go get the sheriff. And then they go in, they have the beers, yes. take a whole you know, moment to have this conversation, lay everything out. It's perfectly timed to when the sheriff comes back in. And then like, you know, just like the the way that it's like, you know, he's like yep. doing a thing and then he has your scene. And then like, oh yeah, did you forget about the other thing that I set up a minute ago? And like, yep. you know, so throughout the film, he's like, there's always multiple aspects going on. And like, I love that. Like, you know, he's never really focused in on one thing. There's always, you know, hey, like this is is happening but i'm also still setting you up for something later perfect example of that also is the siegfried story mm-hmm. right so we get the whole big guy was mad we put on our top of a mountain and yes he says it's a german fable it's always a mountain and then he makes it very hard to get up there and then there's a dragon guarding it, and then it's surrounded by a hellfire and all this other stuff that's going to happen what he's also doing is basically telling us when you get done with this little buddy comedy part here that you're going to get all excited about and you're going to see how good a shot Django truly is they are now friends. Like, Schultz sees him as his equal. You know, he's still teaching him, but he sees him as equal. He's training him to mm-hmm. be a bounty hunter at this point. He's not like, you know, training him how to be a human being. Or, no, you know, no. Here's how we do the bounty hunter business, you know, and I see you as my equal. I'm just I'm just imparting what I know onto you because I see you have more talent than I do. And if you can learn this, you're going to go far. Like, you're going to do so much Which more Which is reflective work. in their uh, performance, too. Like, after the montage, yes. they even change, like, their performance and they feel so much more familiar yes. with oh, each yes. other. Like, I mean, Fox and vaults together mm-hmm. in this are like phenomenal, phenomenal. chemistry. Uh, the acting in this film from top to bottom. Flawless. Well, one person won an award, but Jamie doesn't even get Which nominated. Does like, Kerry me. Washington's physical performance Which, doesn't get nominated. Yeah. I mean, has anyone hit more emotional yeah, range? Jamie not getting nominated was, was a big Unreal. disappointment. Like, you know, uh, a yep. lot of people are, you know, obviously think about Sam Jackson. Sam Jackson. Didn't a, get nominated a lot of people either. People always think about you know Ray when they think of Jamie Foxx because like that was his win and everything. But like whenever I, I need to like remind people that like how talented Jamie Foxx is, I'm like he's doing it all in this movie. This, in my opinion, this is his best. He's doing the drama. He's doing action. His comedy is so perfect. Like everything he is doing is pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but uh, back to the Siegfried uh, story. This is my favorite uh, monologue uh, scene for the film. Yes, but what it did is is it sets up. What we go into. It is the road through hell that they are going to travel to get to her. And it starts at the Mendingo fight, which I'm going to cover in depth in the Bible mm, study. That's a good choice. Well, and there's a reason. I don't want anyone to think it's some kind of like, oh, you're, you know, like I'm being exploit, expletive, but it's. Everything that's happened up to this point, you think, oh, man, it's terrible. But that is the worst mm-hmm. scene in the film in the sense that it is the most that's egregious the most showing of how much they don't fucking care about anybody. Yes. Anybody who's who's not white, they don't fucking care. I was actually wondering if you were going to choose that one for the uh, scenes today because it's fantastic. I will give Calvin this and the character they created when he says, in Chickasaw County, my probably can do whatever the fuck I want with it. I will give them this. They stick with that. Where Schultz sticks with his bounty hunter code, this guy sticks with this piece of shit slave mm-hmm. code that they have. And he does whatever the fuck he wants. Now, Mandingo fighting 
as I'll get into, it's a thing, but it, it's not as upfront as like they made it in it this. Almost like, like it's like a it UFC a little, kind like, of yeah, thing. Backyard type yes, thing, right? more more of a for lesser term, more of like a, a yeah. pit bull fighting yeah. kind of ring where you just get quiet. It wasn't yeah, like yeah. something they put out there. But that scene, it's phenomenal for a couple of reasons because one, we get to see how amazing Leonardo DiCaprio is. Like up until this point, we all know he's a great actor. What he and Jamie Foxx are able to do, like you said, Christoph Waltz wins the award. I don't think he deserved it. I love him. Phenomenal actor. But in, in this movie, it's either Jamie Foxx or it's Leo. Like if you're going to go supporting actor, mm-hmm. Leo, oh, yeah. what he does is unbelievable. And how he and Jamie play off each other, fucking amazing. Like it's just unbelievable. But this scene just, it does what I was telling you about, like shows mm-hmm. everything. When the fight ends, and how it ends, what Tarantino does, which is amazing, and with now Fred, the new editor, it's the reaction mm-hmm. shots. Mm-hmm. In this reaction shots, you can tell who's who and who cares about what. Even the guy who is his like his bodyguard, who plays by James Remar, uh, I forget Butch. his name in the freaking film right now. Butch, yeah. He Yeah, is he's like, like he he's like, Yeah, I know I need to be here, but like I really don't. He doesn't He's like, This is fucking ridiculous. Like he's even like what this this is not necessary. Like he may not like black people. He just has that like sick to his stomach, mm-hmm. like, we're fucking doing this though. Like this is this is a thing. Mowbray, we don't get a good shot of him but he seems to be on board i mean obviously candy well he even well, well he even had the line he goes yeah you could even say i was born to be calvin's lawyer because like he like his connection yeah. with his dad yes and like he literally so he was <laughs> the re- was. the response that i will never re- respond but the, the response that Janko has one of my favorite responses in the whole film <laughs> so, so, so when his he retort to him <laughs> fucking fantastic because like, he told him to lean into the slaver he goes oh i'm like he's leaning fucking all oh, the yeah. way in his reaction is awful the bartender <laughs> is sickened by it. Django sits there and obviously does a great job of hiding his sickness of it. And just pretends like he's not schlant whatever. It's another day in America. Sheba could give two fucks. She is, for lack of a better term, she she might as well almost be what she is all in on candy. He, he can he could bring three more black guys in here, have them all fight, hit them all with a hammer. Mm-hmm. She doesn't give a shit. Like you see it in her face. She, she doesn't nope. fucking care. Schultz is sick and almost gives himself away. He is so sickened by it. Like he's supposed to become because well, this is his you know what I mean? Like true, he almost blows this is like it. his like yes. true like he, he's always understood the horrors and you know of slavery and like what's going on. But like this is like you know this was you know like kind of for you like like you know also like you know when you're like oh like Comfort Girls didn't know about this like but in the context of the movie this is him being like you know okay like I've heard a Mandingo fight and like yeah like I but like he didn't really understand like how truly bad and evil it was until he saw it, yes. you know? And like, and yes. it, it, it really does so much because that's when you see that like, okay, because we, we saw big daddy and big daddy piece of shit, mm-hmm. you know, asshole, but yep. a little comedic side to it. Kind of, kind of a caricature yeah, of it. I mean, they, yep. they dressed him up is... like Colonel Sanders and everything. So like he was, you <laughs> know, he was teed up for us and everything. Yes, absolutely. Calvin, it's like, okay, like he's, you know, okay. He's already a slave owner also. He is truly despicable, you know, and this is where you see that from him and like how just like we see how excited he is about it and like that he truly revels and enjoys it. And like that's when you're just like, oh, he is truly just like evil. Evil. Like there is Mm -hmm. no if, ands or buts Mm -hmm. about it. He is the devil of this movie, like Mm -hmm. literally. Well, Tarantino has said this is the only character he's ever created who he truly despises. Fantastic on him. Fantastic for him. And Calvin, because this is art. So if you're going to create a, a person, you like you said, go all in. Like he even told DiCaprio, you have to go all in or they're going to hate you for it. They're not going to like you. You have to commit. And so he not only did he commit, 
Everyone's probably heard the story, if you're the Tarantino fan, of him not being able to say the N-word. He just couldn't handle it. And Samuel Jackson saying, just say the damn word. It's just another Tuesday for us here in America. Which, again, in itself is a slap in the damn face. Like, whoa, that's fucking crazy. And both him and Jamie had two moments that helped them bring their characters to unreal life. For Leo, he stopped talking to Jamie Foxx on set. When they would come to work, he would ignore him. He treated him like he was a slave. Helped with the tension. Great idea. For Jamie Foxx, one of the first few days there, Jamie Foxx is Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx is a bit flashy. He's got a bunch of stuff. He's worked for it. Good for him. Tarantino pulled him aside and said, you cannot be Jamie Foxx. You cannot come in here with your Range Rover, with your all your stuff, and then go out there and pretend to be a slave. You have to be a slave. And he kind of talked him into it, like, you have to get rid of all the things that you have worked for because you have nothing. You are, you don't, none of that stuff you have. And if you can't get to that level, you're never going to betray it out there. No one's going to believe that you're a slave rising up. They're just going to think, oh, it's Jamie Foxx, you know, movie star who's now playing a, a slave. And so both of those moments help both these actors and... The proof is in the pudding on screen when you see them just in this first moment, the dance of back and forth of <laughs> of this slaver who is used to saying whatever, getting away, and now he has to deal with a, mm-hmm. a free black man who is also a slaver, but who also is unimpressed. I love how they like, get... The dance they get is amazing. Rounds too, which I love. Like they, they like it's truly it. a boxing match between Django and Candy throughout the film. It's like okay, we get this, we get the Mandingo fight, and then we get the uh, the 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 ride to Candyland. We get that whole yes. the whole tete a tete, you know, power play stuff. You know, how fun is when he pulls the oh. guy off the horse though. <laughs> Like, I remember the first time watching the theater. The now, like, like you know, it. when you're watching this, you're Think thinking at any moment something, but it's just like, but it literally, just like the casualness of it is hilarious. And not only that, though, but also what is great is that how fast he is at the draw. Because when he is a fast at the draw, all of a sudden, all these white guys who have, you know, they're used to getting there. All of a sudden, oh, they realize this guy's different. This this, this motherfucker's different. out of our league. Like like we are. We thought we're the varsity team. We are need. We're we're middle school team. Like <laughs> this guy is already for the pros. Like he pulled a motherfucker off a horse. The strength in that alone to pull him down right. and the horse <laughs> is immense. And then he gets he got the drop on all of us with the gun in Mississippi. Like and like at that all... moment they there's like it's like Superman landed and you're like oh this dude has laser eyes. Like fuck we're done. And I love how the this ride scene too uh, shows a lot between. Jay- Django and Schultz, where this is Schultz, where he goes, okay, like, yes. I think, you know, like, Django is passing me. Like, you know, Django is, he is <laughs> yes. steps ahead now. Like, as, you know, like, he's yep. questioning Django, and Django's like, no, no, no. Like, this is what I'm doing. Don't my quite, like, hey, trust me. Dirty. Like, trust me. This is what you taught me. And, like, this, so this is how I'm playing the situation, you know? And, like, this is, and, like, that is a moment, too, where, you know, Schultz has to, you know, it, it again, like, you know, shows that they are equals. He trusts Django and is like, yes. okay, like, I'll stay strong and I'm going to follow your lead. And, all right, keep doing what you're doing. Like, you know, like. Well, it's a flip from when they were Big Daddy because when they're there, they're playing a whole different mm-hmm. character. You know what I mean? Now, and, and they're in his world. They're in the bounty hunter world. They're not in the bounty hunter world right now. They're not doing bounty hunting. They're doing something completely mm-hmm. different. Now he's trying to slide into the slaver world and the person who knows the slaver world is fucking yeah. Django. He has met someone like who the slavers. He's probably you know, like he said, be the worst version of him and he is. He's being the worst because after he yanks him off the freaking horse and he threatens all the white boys, <laughs> touch your guns you all die. He then goes and that one uh, black slave is giving him mm-hmm. the eyeballs and then he starts and he goes in. He tells them all you know, I'm worse than these white boys you know, like 
And you're just like, mm-hmm. fuck. It's amazing. Like, he commands yeah. everything. To the fact that, like, again, that Schultz is, like, literally, like, to himself almost being like, fuck. Like, I'm, like, this, like, this is fucking tough. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I can fucking keep this up. Yeah. Like, you know, and it's, but again, it, but, he, but, he, but he trusts him, though. I mean, he's like, all right. And he's like, I got you. I got your back, man. Yeah. Like, Schultz, <laughs> Schultz is in too deep at this point. Uh, so that's, you know, that's step one. That, and we're came down the road. Now, we get down the road. We get to D'Artagnan. We get to the escaped slave and the horrible scene that's about to happen. Now, as we talked about, there's the, the back and forth. How much of this, what happens to D'Artagnan, is actually... How much of it is it Django's fault? Is it Django's fault because he has pushed, mm-hmm. right? And now he's st- showing off. And so, like you said, it's a box that Calvin realizes that, okay, I've actually got an adversary. You know, for so long, it's, there's, no one no one says anything to me. I've got an adversary, someone who is actually worthy and maybe more superior to me. Now he's calling me out mm-hmm. in front of no, my I people. I mean, I think, I mean, I think, you know... Django knew he was going to die regardless. Uh, I think he knew that, but I think uh, him getting ripped apart by dogs. Yeah. That's Django's fault. Like the, like, because that is, like you said, like, he, you know, like that is Calvin being like, all right, well, I'm going to call you then. Like you, you don't think I'm a fucking deranged motherfucker. Like here, I will show you. And then like in daring Django to break, like, cause like he, he looks at Django the entire time that while that's happening, they don't break eye contact. They just look at each other. So it's like, uh, yeah, D'Artagnan was going to die regardless, but he probably wouldn't have got torn apart by dogs. Yeah. That scene is... And, and that weighs on him, too. And you can see that weigh on him, too, you know? When it, he puts his glasses on. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So good. Uh. Which is why he says D'Artagnan, motherfuckers, at the end. Because, you know, he's get. But there's a part of it that so he... So I got it. Round one, Django. Round two, Candy. As far as this D'Artagnan. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yep. I mean, yeah, at this point, it is one-to-one. Like, he gets the best of them up until... The, and then he overplays his hand a tad. Some of it is Christoph Waltz's fault. So quickly once his name had to call you know check his his move Mm -hmm. but because of the way he'd been pushing candy and all them the whole time oof unfortunately unfortunately it is i mean some of that rests on him i mean it was that and you know like and like also like just like yeah at the end of the day like no matter how like strong powerful you know jenga was you know he also got tipped off just because he can't handle his fucking love for hildy you know obviously yeah i mean well yes and that's that dinner (laughs) because that is how we get to can't well i'm saying Right oh, yeah. before the, when we get introduced to oh, Stephen <laughs> Samuel Jackson again, I will never repeat the stuff they say, but it's some of the funniest shit uh, when he comes out at well, I was on that horse. The way they t- hey Snowball, you want to talk to me? It's just the way the two of them and even Candy the way he's oh just yeah because like the, it's just three great actors. And the funny thing is, Christoph Waltz he's the Academy Award winner in this. He's sitting there saying a fucking thing. He got three gentlemen just going, <laughs> just amazing, just amazing, funny oh, scene. But it's like the biggest dick contest, and who's really and in again, charge? It just like and, says so much again about uh, like you know, okay, was it mean for you know like because this is uh you know uh, again like you know yes, black slavers were a thing. Were there black mandingo experts? Probably not. But were you know, but were uh, you know some of these black head of households like kind of looked at in this way a little bit? Uh, yeah, kind of. And like, and it's fascinating too because those you know are the characters that we kind of talked about earlier. It's like a little bit of Stockholm syndrome that like you know like because Stephen he's so old he's been working for his family for so long that like so he, all he knows, knows like oh well yeah I hate black people too but like these black people because they're not me I'm different yeah. you know so it's like I mean he's got to a station in. 
life where Candy he's shit. able to he, 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 like nobody yes. else can do that. He tell, he runs the house. Be, you know? He exactly. runs the show. He's sitting in the library drinking brandy and drops his whole act. Like he keeps Django from being killed. Like the dude worked mm-hmm. his way up, and he he's the fucking he is the fucking yep. emperor. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, he really is pulling the strings. Like yes, Candy still runs things, but he does lean on him a lot. He oh, really yeah. does. Which is probably what Ben was. Which we'll get into him in a second. Old Ben. He is such a delicious character, and he even said when he played this role as Steven, Samuel Jackson said he wanted to be the most hated <laughs> character in black cinema. He wanted black people to hate him more than any other person, and it's understandable. I get it because given the history of a lot of different nationalities, races, and creed, when you have a struggle, if you have someone in the struggle turning against you and siding with those who are oppressing you, you hate mm-hmm. them more than the oppressor because those people are supposed to help you. So I can understand why he would want to be, and fucking hell is he good. Is he just... Oh yeah, he brings every single part of that singular aspect. Like you said, like the impact of you know that you know white people could turn one of your own into this you know version of evil is the most evil thing that they can do. You know, like you said, like you know to corrupt us from the inside is you know just absolutely terrifying. And like I mean, and Sam Jackson, I mean, just literally brings everything to that. Because again, like yeah, if you're gonna do it, like if you're gonna be this, you gotta play it all the way and like that's why i love about you know every single character you know does that you know to you know what yeah the, there's he, no half stepping the way that he antagonizes Django, you know like i mean dead ass like he is one of my most hated you know movie characters like i cannot stand <laughs> steven like and it's really it's just that like you know his pettiness like he just sits there and he prods at Django the whole time to try to get him to break and you know and fucking with hildy and just like and just saying snarky shit and i'm just like fuck you Steven, god damn it shut up like and then like well i think because he feels like his uh his pecking order is suddenly challenged because of Django. because Django's a freeman coming yep. in on a horse the whole time steven's mm-hmm. running the show steven's got these white folks completely dancing to his tune and he you know he's just smart about it. he doesn't push himself too far he keeps himself in the good graces of calvin and then when he sees this black man riding in a horse i mean looking cool as fuck let's not pretend anymore i mean his costume oh, this time around aces. dude's bad aces. he's a cool looking motherfucker and he comes riding in and steven immediately goes funny as he smells his own like he knows he goes oh mm-hmm. okay this guy is also fooling these white people i can't he can't outdo yeah. me you know what i mean yeah. i've got to bring him down before he can bring me down type of thing and it's ah, such a great dichotomy the two of them together oh it's, it's just beautiful and then i mean again when we pull hilly out of the hot box another it's just like he does such he has such an amazing way of showing the reality of what slavery was like Without it being preachy, if, if that's a good turn, like it's just like, hey, guess what? This is this is everyday life, like you know what I mean? Like it's just so matter of fact. Like this is what happens. This is how things go. Whether you like to see it or not, this is a real thing that happens. Even the thing about when well, I gotta burn the mattress, it seems like a subtle, subtle, but such an expose on what it's like. He does it in in an interesting way, you know, because he'll a lot of times in this film he'll he'll introduce a an idea and he'll do it first way in a like more comedic absurdist way and then he hits you with the real version like that's what he does here uh there's a line that made me crack up 
be just be by the way it's delivered i mean it's still terrible but uh like when they first pull up to Candyland and like the other and they like pull up the the guy on the horse like starts wrangling the slaves like he's a football coach he's like you know come on get in line yeah yeah, yeah. and then and then and then when they go inside he goes all right let's go and he's like he goes he's like n-words don't run in candy or n-words don't walk in candy land we run it, it just like sounded like a coach and it made me laugh even though i mean it's still terrible but because he's still portraying it but yeah but it was no, like very absurd and then we shift to you know pulling hildy out of the box and like you know recounting you know everything that you know mm. and like just the implication that like and steven was so upset that like oh well we just put her in she has 10 days like i'm not taking her out now. like you know just like so he literally hits you just like with the other you know side of the bat and it's just like fuck like you know just like the implications mm. that like that is just normal you know that things like that happen because yep. like, that's like kind of hildy's thing she runs away you know they they branded her and like that's her you know so it's like you know just knowing that like that's been her day to day for who knows how long it's just like it's mm. fucking awful and the other things in the scene we're not going to talk about but when steven you know when he gets an idea I'll, I'll get to it but there's other things that are said that also give away other things yeah. that have happened to her but yep. the dinner scene is holy fucking shit like it's like one like this is just one horrible scene after another and this the most atrocious scene that Tarantino's ever written in my opinion is the Mandingo fight scene but the worst scene the most horrific scene in my opinion is the dinner scene because of the absurdity the where it all goes and where it lands before we jump in this let me ask you a question this is something this, I wanted to ask now I know mm-hmm. it's for the movie I know that they have to do this for the movie this is what you know this is where we get our thing this is the story we're doing a Siegfried story this is the southern Siegfried story this is it's just Django's story Django's now saving Broomhilda that's what this part of the movie is about mm-hmm. so for that aspect I love it but it's the one only moment that I've ever questioned with Tarantino is like normally everything he does I feels like on point but it feels like to get her to, it would be just easier to send him because he's German to say hey I hear that you have a German slave who speaks German would you sell her I mean I speak German I you know, kind of want to have a little comfort girl myself it'd be great if someone could speak German you know what I mean doesn't it seem like he could have they could have gotten Broomhilda easier than going uh, look guys like I said because it's a movie we have to go through the trial does it feel like it, it could have been an easier route to get her without all this subterfuge honestly Honestly, like it wasn't until like because I was, you know, watching this and taking notes. I never really understood. Like I always like, you know, like appreciated watching it, but I never truly understood what their plan was or like how their plan worked. Yeah. Until like really taking a look at it. And I was like, okay, I get it now. Cause it makes sense, you know, with this whole uh, you know, look at the big thing here, yeah. but not the small thing over here. And it, you know, I think it helps because it's like again, like if you're gonna use, you know, your white privilege, use every yeah, aspect yeah. of it. So like, you know, the fact that like to that, you know, that this grossness, but it's also I also feel like it this is Schultz's, you know, kind of heads up play and learning from Django. Like he's remembering you know, Django explaining how comfort girls worked and like, you know, and like this is Schultz thinking, how can he make this happen knowing, okay, well, Hildy, she's not, you know, like, okay, if she's a comfort girl, how can, you know, she's not going to be in the house you know, how can we get her in the house? You know, so it's like, uh, I feel like this was kind of Schultz, like kind of having a heads up play and like, you know, remembering, you know, what he's learned from Django at that point. And again, like kind of their symbiosis and their partnership on like being able to play off of each other, you know, and Schultz willing to make himself look like a, you know, creepy fucking yeah, dude. Yeah. Like, oh, I need to talk to the German girl. He's willing to make himself yeah, look like yeah. that, you know, 
to progress the plan yeah. along. So I'm I, I'm fine with it. I just had to ask. You know, I had never thought about it until I was rewatching. I was like, this plan seems like it's a lot far fetched. Like we could have just simply done this again. I love it because we have to get for the movie part. Yeah, I, mean, I you know I wouldn't want to change it. But it was my one thing. Is like, does it work? Does it work? But and, this was Schultz trying to. He was trying to still do it within the gotcha. system. You yep. know, like this was. This was him still being like, okay, like I, I still want all of us to be able to have our cake yeah. and eat it. Like I want us all to be able to walk away from this and have it, you know, and not have complications. He's still trying to do it within the system, you know, until at the very end when he, you know, literally says like, couldn't yeah. resist myself. And like, we'll you know, that kind of yeah, ruins I know. everything. Uh, yeah. Which again, yeah. Hmm. yeah. So, but this dinner scene though, I love, I think this is one of the best, this is, it is one of my favorite dinner scenes. I think this may be his second. Be- so we just got done with Inglorious Bastards and the number one scene he says he's written of all time is the opening scene for Inglorious Bastards. It's a 20 minute scene and it is amazing. It's an amazingly tense scene to open a film. It's maybe the best opening of any film ever. Mm-hmm. The second best scene he always felt was up until that point that came up, his original was the Sicilian scene from True Romance. The moment where Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper talk about where Sicilian bloodline comes from. <laughs> he felt that he mm-hmm. felt that, that was a, a great scene. There was a lot to it. Now, yeah. I, again, I, I understand your interpretation of the whole thing. I, I got that part. <laughs> what I think is, is actually this scene is his second best scene or at least a 1A to the to what's going because this scene especially it's the phrenology scene when he comes back in and Calvin Candy has realized well before we jump into that but that's I think because as we lead into it Stephen shows himself to us the audience if you're paying attention that he's the brains behind everything once the sister says that she thinks Django, because he's been wanting Django since he rode up on that fucking horse a couple hours ago, that Hildy's got eyes for Django, he now has his senses up. Mm-hmm. He is the one who, after dinner is about being done, and she's pouring wine, and he asks how she likes to be at the big table, and he's always sitting there. He's almost like his, he's just like a, like he's almost like a parrot for him. He just stands there and he repeats everything. He's like his hype man, yes. He's, a, he's his hype man. <laughs> the worst first hype man ever, though. You know what I mean? Like, what a, what a terrible way to be the hype man. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. The Uncle Tom hype man is not is not a position anyone really wants. But he's sitting there, and he's the one who suggests, "Hey, Doctor Schultz," and I love how he pronounces his name wrong every time on purpose. You should see the whip marks on her back because he knows it's going to get her. If her and Django, there's something there. It's going to get a rise out of it. And I didn't really notice it the first few times I watched it, especially this time watching it. It's intentional because I always thought, why are they showing the back? And then it becomes crystal. They show and finally the sister's like, we don't need to show this. And when she's butting herself up, they do a close up of him and he's got this look on him like this shit eating grin like fucking got you. Like I know. Oh, he does. And it's beautiful because he's the mastermind. And that's when he comes back out about the whole white cake thing and he whispers, me in the in the in the library or whatever and he goes off and he gets candy's attention but you know it's also you know it's also funny about that though like it is like you know steven you know sniffing out you know Django and like you know showing his intelligence but it also it, it's funny like it, that that would be unnecessary because neither him nor calvin just obviously notice that they both have the same <laughs> I, I know runaway mark on there i mean i know yeah. other slaves might have the runaway yeah. marks too maybe that's why but like i'm surprised that neither one of them brought yeah. that up you know on how they might be connected somehow well maybe because you know the reason that they've allowed him to say what he wants is because it's dr schultz his guest it's his free 
valet or whatever he's you know his free friend there so he's not gonna because he's trying to get twelve thousand dollars he's not gonna be really gonna this the weird thing the southern hospitality you know what i mean we're gonna be gentlemen only for white people but after that fucking all bets are off we'll do what the fuck we want to whoever we want well we're just pieces of shit i love that under the guise mm-hmm. of well the southern hospitality you know fuck you and your southern hospitality yeah what I think the mastery of this scene is, and, and I, I mean, yeah, the the opening to Inglorious Bastards, yeah, probably his best written like singular scene, because this is like, I mean, this is a pretty long sequence, kind of a collection of scenes, you know. But um, you know, again, like how we've kind of had this boxing match between uh, Candy and Django. The the dinner has you know its own you know rounds within itself as well, because like the power dynamic would shift with each with each uh, course. Yes, yes. You know, Tarantino has always been very purposeful with the way they use his food. Like, we even had a little presentation porn for a minute <laughs> uh, at the beginning uh, leading into the dinner. But, like, with each course, uh, so it's like, you know, this, like, pre-appetizer course is, like, you know, them uh, literally buttering Calvin up, you know. Like, you know, this is literally how they do it in business meetings. Yeah. Like, you know, like, this is how you close deals and stuff. Like, this is why, you know, business, you know, people go on, go on meetings with clients, you know to dinner because it's kind of like this but with each course like the you know because they go in candy is very defiant and then they kind of ease them up and then they win them over but then they show their hand and then and this is changing throughout each one leading up to um you know the uh everything culminating at yes the phrenology Um, conversation which has been disproved like that that Mm -hmm. whole science of was disproved but in my opinion this is DiCaprio's finest moment of acting in his entire career. And I know he's done a lot of great things. I love a lot, almost everything he's in. He's amazing as Rick Dalton in Once Upon a Time. But for me, the mastery of going between emotions, keeping it calm, going crazy, cutting his hand open, still going on with the scene, adding the wiping the blood on Hildy's face, all of that is mastery of a performance, of being able to not just like, you know, like, uh, he'd be like uh, Pacino, you know, just kind of like lose it every second. He <laughs> builds it. He he comes out calm. He lulls them in now. It's like, okay, you, you fucked with me. I'm going to fuck with you. You know, all the way up. And then even post this scene where after he's won, he's calm. He's, he's a, victorious. He's just, he's like, no, let them lick their wounds. They've been beaten. Like there's such mastery from this performance in this moment. That, mm-hmm. and, and just, and just the, the sheer terror also of the scene at the table. It's oh, unreal. Man. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's just like the, the milk scene in English special. You're terrified from the fucking moment it begins because it, we're, we're in the know here. Like we are the people in the know. We know that the people he's talking to in both scenarios, they're in trouble. Yeah. And it just, we don't know where it's going to go and how it's going to end. And, you know, he's got her head down. He's got the hand. He's just like, oh, my God, is he, he might. Because, you know, first time you see, you go, does he bash your brains? Does, that, does this where the whole thing kicks off? Like, is this? Because, you know, when a Tarantino film, no one is safe. You just never know who's going to make what because, mm-hmm. you know, he kills off people surprisingly all the time. You know, like in Pulp Fiction, when Travolta gets shot, you're like, did Vincent Vega just get killed? You know, but here's the thing, though, like, because with Vincent Vega, like, that helps it. If if they killed Hildy in the scene, he would have lost the, the Agreed. Agree. Like it, it would have been lost, but that unpredictability is yes. still there, though. Like this is, you know, unlike you know anything we've seen Leo do. Mm-hmm. You know, like he really is just going for it in that moment. Um, love you, Leo. I hope with that blood smear. I hope that was in between yeah, takes. Uh, yeah. and that was fake I'm blood. Hoping. If you wiped his real blood on her, I could find I, nothing. I thought about. I could that. find I nothing like, that says either or. I truly hope that they were like, hey, for continuity, we got to put fake blood on you now for these later takes. 
I hope because if he smeared real blood on her poor face, if that's you watch her reaction, reaction but whatever it was, I don't <laughs> think she saw it coming. It was, I think it was completely improvised and a great job by her to keep in character. I mean, she's, I mean, yes. she was amazed with the I whole mean, thing. Yeah. Uh, she, you know, she didn't say a whole lot, but she said a lot in her physicality. So I, I do have something to say right about ahead, please. that. But um, as far as a uh, little skull scene, uh, I just want to say that the, the interesting thing with that is, is, you know, playing up, you know, Candy's a character. He's doing this now. Now he's doing this for yep. his pleasure. This is for show now, like, you know, to intimidate them. There's an easier way he could reveal them, but he's going to do He's it. knocking down Django. Mm-hmm. Like th- like you said, this is his haymaker. They've had a box max. I've got you against the ropes. You don't know it. Here comes my special punch. I'm going to land it. Mm-hmm. And it and it comes off because it's so fascinating in how convincing he is about something he does yes. not know, like about something not being real, and him literally, who knows where he got this information or if he made it up himself, but he how serious he is about like he believes what he's saying yes. is real. And like people like that that can convince themselves of their lies are the scariest liars of all. You know, and like this movie, just, this movie came out ten years ago, and it's some of the scene holds very true to what we're living in now. Exactly, and like if you just sound convincing enough, you know, like you can say and like be, and it's just yeah, it's so much. But um, but yeah, with Carrie Washington though, yeah, we haven't brought her up, and you know, it's I will say at least Candy's sister gets the same treatment. She also yes. doesn't really have many lines throughout the movie, so I don't know if it was just maybe that is just a specific message that they're trying to say about women because i didn't really realize there besides uh, a few of the other slaves there's not very many women in this movie no. in general um you know there's a couple of uh, you know female slaves they talks to at um at uh big daddy's i feel the the only way that I can justify like you know on just like wishing that you know Broomhilda had more lines and more things to say. And I feel like maybe, maybe if there were things cut, maybe could've that could have yep. been some of it. Might have been some of her things. Um, if you were gonna cut anything down. But maybe it kind of adds to the fact that again, like this is now we are watching this as Django's secret yes. story. You know, this is a story Django is going to be yep. a story. You know, he is a legend at this point. So, you know, it maybe it's like kind of one of those things. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, Broomhilda was there, but like, you know, she didn't really say much. She was, you know, there to be the dancer yep. and get saved and to to serve the the story's purpose, you know. Um, but which I do, but I still do think that's unfortunate, you know, for the character of Broomhilda, though, because I still think, you know, it would have been nice to get a, a little bit more, whether it be in flashback yeah. form of them. Like, maybe that would have been yeah. nice like yeah. it would have made sense on like why she's so quiet now you know because i mean she's been at fucking Candyland, which is you know known to be despicable we know what she's yeah. been doing as like the comfort girl for the mandingos yes. like you know like so it makes sense that she's like you know basically mute in you know this but like it would have been nice to like maybe get some more flashback scenes of her and Django interacting. It felt like even in their flashback scenes, like they didn't really say much, you know, or she didn't really get say much. And like, and then we got, we get her in like some uh, hallucinations. So, but, but because Carrie Washington is a fucking uh, boss, I mean, her physical acting, the things that she's doing with Mm. her face, her eyes, her screens, like she is emoting yes. so much in the specific way that she's screaming in the movie. Yes. So I mean, she she did take you know what was given to her and just like elevated it yes. to like such a level because like she really you know you feel her like you feel Hildy you know and 
and that and that helps you know in making her you know that she is you know uh you know a character that you easily are yes. rooting for to you know be saved and reunited because you can just feel already the pain that she's in that she's already felt you know what she's went through and you know you want nothing more than that so it's like yeah the fact that like you know you just want her to get to a point to where she doesn't have to scream yeah. anymore um you know does so much for yeah. you know for her character, you know, with what was given. She's she's phenomenal. She really is. And I think, you she's know, she fantastic. finally, if you notice at the end of the film, she's about to become herself. So if there was mm-hmm. a sequel, which was what Hateful Eight was originally kind of going to be, I think we'd have got more of Hildy and we would have gotten to see her because I think she mm-hmm. would have been just as strong. Her yeah. personality yeah, come back I think out. Be great. Mm-hmm. Now, the yeah. film, after that moment, the film, well, we'll talk about this, then we'll just kind of get right to the end, because the re- mm. the rest is just like a roller coaster of, of fun, in my opinion, after that. But fucking Schultz. Now, he reminds me of Archie Hickox from Inglorious Bastards, in that mm. they mean well, but they fuck it up. Their own, sometimes their <sighs> code fucks them up. Why the fuck can he just shake his fucking hand? They have, look it, in the end of the day, <laughs> did they did their thing go the wrong way? Yes. But do they still get did they still accomplish what they came out to get? Yes. Did they learn a valuable lesson? Yes. But who at the moment he's got her free. Django's <laughs> free. He has done what he needed to do. He does not need to provoke the dragon. The dragon has kind of you know, it's like, why the f- just shake his fucking hand? And then we turns because at this I point mean, he too. turns and then he says, I couldn't resist. Yes, you could. Two things happen in this moment. One, you promised this man. You brought him on this fucking journey. You brought him on this journey to save this girl. You finally got a freedom. And the moment you shoot him, you have now abandoned him and abandoned him to the very people you're trying to keep them from. You know what kind of fucking vultures these people are. And you should know that now he's, I mean, he may be the fastest gun in the South, but there's a lot of fucking people there. I don't care how fast you are. Six bullets in these guns is not a machine gun. You're going to get fucking killed. You're probably going to get her killed because you can't fucking rise above. And uh, who gives a shit this shit eating? This motherfucker is going to go off and be nothing and die this way. You know what I mean? Like, it's the one moment. It's the huge character flaw. But it really, he really ends up fucking them both over. Almost. I mean, thankfully, Django is who he is. But holy mm-hmm. fucking shit. So I have some. So so I, I had some very strong feelings about this uh, on this previous watch. Because, again, uh, I think this very big flaw is necessary because if not schultz might come off as too pure and good you know i I get it yeah and we want Django to be his own savior exactly so here so that's the thing that i think is the purpose that it served overall is you know because like you said like yeah it's just like you're, you're right there at the finish line and you know honestly i get schultz for it like you just you've done everything you've mm-hmm. made yourself look like a fool you're out 12 grand you're just you're you're swallowing your L's you've signed everything you're and just like you just want to go and just like you and he wants to shake your fucking hand like if he he's that's like his like last a shred of respect that he's trying <laughs> to save for himself um and again, because, you know, you know, Schultz, you know, at the beginning of the film, we see that he does still have, you know, slightly selfish tendencies or, or maybe I won't say selfish, but he uh, it still is, you know, self opportunistic, whatever that might mean. Yeah, no, but, yep. And I think that does serve uh, to kind of uh, ignite this whole thing that, you know, Django has to, you know, to really do it for himself because before, and I still kind of feel this way, like, I don't know, I feel like. 
the film could have been this finale could have been reworked like this first shootout like afterwards could have been the finale somehow you know rather than having to do a shootout Django gets captured have some extra torture and then it you know to be for Django to like you know show off everything he's learned you know throughout the journey but I still feel like we could have gotten that in in this first shootout so i don't know it feels like a weird stutter step ending yeah. in a way um but i still love the fight i mean obviously i still love the finale yes like, how oh, can the, you not the double it's, yeah <laughs> it's amazing i don't know yeah. i feel like racist maybe white people just, getting shot left and right i just uh, feel like maybe they could have smushed this shootout into just or these two shootouts into one giant shootout i don't know if i needed uh Django almost getting his balls cut off you know like i i don't know if i needed that <laughs> um but um but again but it is to kind of show off everything he's learned from king yeah. uh, i love that it does give this a uh, moment for um Django to do what Schultz did for him to free these slaves and like you know like tell them about bounty hunting and like you know yeah. inspire them I like how it does give that moment yeah. um, I don't know just for something it's the only the this like the way that the finale goes is the only part where the pacing like kind of stutters a little bit for me yeah um, yeah no I, I know it, yeah, it just kind of stutters a little bit, but it, it's still. I mean, these these two final shootouts are just. I I love me some good old <laughs> fashioned blood squids. Yes. I mean, it's great. It's goopy and flying, and I love it's amazing. it. Amazing. Ah. So and his shots are so funny. It's so good. well, I think the other part is what we get is we we do get a little bit of the vengeance, though. We do get him to ride back in. You know, we get a chance to see the great late Michael Parks play. You know, a great character for the LaQuint Dicky mind. Tarantino, one of his worst. I don't know why he put himself in it to do a terrible Australian accent. He's just <laughs> the only good thing is he blew himself up. He got blown up. So uh, you know, th- there's there's the uh, the other side of the coin for that one. But we get the D'Artagnan motherfuckers. We rise back in. He shoots Stonesight from the dick, his second dick shot. He saves her. We get all the way back. He puts on Candy's outfit that he met him in and then takes out the rest of them. Has one of the best shots. I mean, he shoots Billy Crass in the dick. That's dick number shot number three. And then he shoots Miss Laura Lee or whatever her name is. Candy's sister shoots her through the fucking open doorway. And then we get the head-to-head with Steve, which is phenomenal. So, in all, I mean, the movie ends fantastically. I mean, it's just exciting. I mean, if I mean, if you're a Southern sympathizer, it's not exciting for you, but that's part of the horror movie, I guess, for you. For me, it's joyous. I get joy watching them get killed every time. Like, it's not a time I don't enjoy it. I fucking love it. One of my favorite lines, I won't repeat the whole line, but when one of the guy goes, who gave an N-word a gun? It's like he knows, like, why? Because we're all dead. Like, he's just, and he's just lighting them up. I just fucking love it. They just starts I mean, the lighting them that, up. The so fact great. That he's doing it in the their house. He's doing it in Candy's outfit. Their house, oh, everything, yes. the shit eating grin at the end, yeah. like, you know, with the cigarette in his mouth. The, and the, uh, and the, the six stem. bullets in the two guns comment. I mean, <sighs> come on. I mean, it, it really isn't. I mean, and I love how, it, you know, the second shootout, it does feel like it is that superhero moment, too. Like, he's unstoppable. He's in his John Wick. Bag. Yeah, it's not even a shootout anymore. He is just eliminating people at this point. Like, there was a shootout, and now Nothing. he's just like, you're on my list. I'm taking out the entire shit heel D'Artagnan people. I'm taking out and the rest of the house people. There's nothing left of it. Nothing. Just decimates yep. everyone. Uh, yeah, the shot of uh, uh, Laura going through the doorway cracks me <laughs> every time. Love it. I give that actress such credit because you know she's got a harness on. 
on. And yep. she knows she's about to yank through. <laughs> just even when she does her scream, you can hear it echo because she I don't she like hit the squib, she goes, <laughs> she just fucking flies out. Uh so fucking good. So so good. And it does solidify at the end our whole Stockholm thing where the last words that pretty much he says is about that Candleland will always be there. Like, now you're going to be on the water punch. Like, he is doesn't realize. Like, he had his freedom. But now he's wanted. Basically, now. but he's decided. He's No, no, no. I'm talking about yeah. where I don't even know who knows how long it takes him to be wanted. But Steven himself could be free, but he doesn't want to be free. Uh, yeah. He, he likes his position. He is good with his masters. He is good living there. He yeah. likes the life he has. Oh, his, his monologue yeah. is disgusting. Yes. God damn yes. Samuel Jackson. He's so good. Yes. Delivering that. You know about what he's gonna do to Django and how to make his yep. life miserable. And that'll be the story. Of you is just it's so disgusting. You know, coming from another black slave, just tell and just is vile, vile. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. What was your favorite song? On this, as always, amazing soundtrack that just fits, even between the Western stuff that he picks up from Spaghetti Westerns to the rap songs he threw in there. It's just a phenomenal. So what's your favorite? Oh, man. I mean, this is a great, great soundtrack, as usual. Really uh, got some range on here. Um, so so I had uh, two because uh, there was one that I've always been convinced was in the movie, mm-hmm. but it's not. I think it was used as the trailer, I guess, because okay. I'm trying to figure out in my head. And and I was like trying to watch trailers. I, I could have swore I saw maybe a TV spot or something, but it was uh, set to No Church in the West by Jay-Z, Frank Ocean, Kanye. And I've always I always thought it was in the movie. And I kept like waiting to hear it when I was rewatching. Yeah. I go, oh, wait, it's not in the actual movie. So I think it was like a TV okay. spot, but I know that they used that song for something at some point. Um, but in the film, um, the as far as uh, a great song, but also fitting in thematically and also where he drops it. 100 Black Coffins by Rick Ross is dropped as soon at right after, yes. uh, you know, Django yes. and Schultz have their meeting and it. he explains to him, like, I'm doing me, I'm doing the bass of bat. And then just that fucking drops in and he is just badass riding his fucking horse and like perfect placement, you know, thematically. Everything about that is a is a great song choice. Did you know Jamie Foxx wrote that song? No, I didn't know yes. he wrote it. But Jamie Foxx Fox. is the author of the song. Yes. You know, I, you know, I fucking tell everybody. Everybody, he's a, he's a Don- threat. He's like everybody a triple threat. Give, whatever. It is, everybody yeah. gives Donald Glover, you know. Uh, oh, I love his, Donald Glover. And don't get me wrong, love Donald Glover. Everybody Great. gives him his flowers about being like the Renaissance man. I'm like, yo, Jamie Foxx has been that for yes. like thirty years. Yes, like for real. Just I think just because Jamie Foxx is a little more flashy and out in the front, and Donald Glover's more secluded. I think that's the only <laughs> reason he gets you know that, that kind of credit. Probably. Who was your favorite character? From the film, so I did say Schultz is my favorite, like Tarantino, yes, you did. verse character because I think, um, it just as far as like written wise and like you know just like top to bottom written yes. wise performance that kind of thing. But for the film, I mean, it's fucking Django, yeah. Like the film, Sorry, not like, to pick him. the the evolution really is cool. Like like kind of how I said, like he wrestles the film away from. Uh, Schultz, because for yes. the first, you know, 25, 30 minutes, we do spend a good amount of time with Schultz and like learning about him and him yeah. kind of, you know, bringing uh, Django along as Django's, you know, just with him kind of taking in 
um, you know, everything that's going on. I think also Django's learning to be free. Yes. You know, like he's learning to be free. He was just, I mean, he's just exactly. a slave being sold at an auction and he's had his face burned. So like, you know, he's not going to just suddenly jump out, start being verbose exactly. and start talking shit to Candy. He's got to. Yeah. But the way his personality, you know, just like comes out and, you know, and like he learns more, he's smart and like he, how fast he picks up on things. Like uh, he's just a, he's a very fascinating character, um, you know, to watch throughout the film and the way that he changes. And like, again, like becomes this superhero, this legend. And like you, you're just convinced of it, you know, like there is, you know, not an ounce of doubt in this performance by Jamie Foxx. Like, you know, he has just all the confidence, except like in that very first scene, like you said, in that very first scene where he's like, you know, like kind of, he is apprehensive to like yeah. repeat, you know, himself. Um, but then, you know, after that, that's, that's it. Like yeah. after this is pure confidence. Once it, that blanket comes off. It's more confident as the film goes on too. Like his power just grows stronger and stronger. And like, it's a, it's a fascinating character evolution. We've already kind of talked about it, but what is your favorite line or monologue from the film? Man, you know how hard that is because there are so many great lines. I love the exchange. Are, are, are you positive? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? What's positive? Are you sure? <laughs> he's like, yeah. yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, you're sure. I'm, I'm sure. And then at the end, he goes, I'd be positive that he's dead. Uh, <laughs> it, a whole great exchange. Um, and I meant to ask it earlier when we were talking about the scene, because um, as far as like maybe a more of a monologue is, you know, I love, I do love the exchange conversation between Schultz and Django when they're in the cave, um, you know, talking and he's yes. telling them uh, the story. And, you know, it's just a nice exchange of like, you know, they're learning about each other. They learn Django's married, you know, and they're like talking and went back and forth on it. Do you think that is actually a German story that all the Germans know, or did he make that up? I think it is. I think Django? it's, I think it's the real thing. I think it's the okay. real thing. Yep. Because I don't know, there's always been a part of me that wonders if he like kind of made it up to inspire Django, you know? Yeah. But at this, but at the same time, this is at the point where they've already done their, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. bounty hunting for the winter. So like their partnership is technically over. Yeah. So when I was kind of thinking about, I was like, okay, maybe him retelling the story to Django, like inspired him and, you know, you yeah. know, brought his memory back and then like kind of is, you know, what served to inspire him to make the sacrifice inevitably for Django. Um, so I don't know. I, I, it was a question that I've like, I've kind of, I've had two minds about it. And lastly, what was your favorite scene from once again, this amazing film filled with amazing scenes? Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I think that, you know, with Tarantino movies, we can take Liberty when we say scenes, um, as far as like some of the link, <laughs> sequences, um, <laughs> sequences. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's. I, I've gone. I, I went back and forth, but yeah, I'm gonna go the Big Daddy sequence, like you know, from when yeah. they arrive there, and then on to um, you know, through the bag scene is just like a really great, great section. It really gives you the best of everything that this film has to offer. Um, you know, yes. you get the empowering parts, but you also get you know the. Uh, parts of disgust and where you're you know horrified at what you're seeing mm -hmm. and the behavior of some of these people and you know it really does like lay it all out but also it's, it's a perfect primer for you know yeah. going into uh you know meeting calvin candy um so just everything that the this you know this uh scene does is really fantastic you know sprinkle in some uh you know backstory for Django. yeah um, again, like, you know, the, the, the costume choices are all so very specific throughout the film. Yeah. And I just, again, like I just cannot get, I just love that image of him writing, like when, you know, the cut from, 
I get to choose my own clothes. And then the cut to him on the <laughs> horse and that outfit just gets me every time. Like I, I love it. So I, but th- this whole sequence, uh, uh, Don Hudson, uh, absolutely one of his best performances, honestly. Um, I think he is absolutely fantastic in this whole little section. And uh, yeah, it, it just, uh, and then that whipping just fucking rocks. And that's a wrap on our 10th episode. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Devon Taylor of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club Podcast for joining me today. I had a fucking blast discussing our love of Tarantino and horror films, as well as taking a deeper look at QT's second revisionist history film, Django Unchained. Now you can find the link to the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club Podcast and the show's socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now be sure to join me again in two weeks as my good friend Pat Fournier, host of the B News USA Podcast, joins me once again this time to dissect and discuss the Mandingo fight scene from Django Unchained. Until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.